Welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and my co-host is Chris Kay. Today, we're concluding our two-part series on the grunge scene that emerged out of the Seattle area and took the world by storm. In 1991, grunge exploded into the mainstream when bands like the Melvins, Temple of the Dog, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Mud Honey, and Nirvana, to name a few, all released landmark albums that changed the landscape of music for the next decade. Today, we'll discuss the rise and fall of grunge as the mainstream music industry raced to sign the next big thing out of Seattle. All right, and so before we start, um, just to let everyone know, today's episode will feature some discussion of topics such as death and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so... It's, we've got, you know, part one brought us from basically 84, 85, all the way up to 1990, early 1991. And now at this point, you know, Alice in Chains has released their debut album. There's a rumble of stuff coming out of Seattle and the calendar turns to 1991 and all of a sudden things are just starting to happen up in the Pacific Northwest. There's a few bands we did not talk about on the first episode that had come out by 1991, but it just made more sense in context to talk about them here today. Um, so there's going to be kind of a mix starting with it, but really we're, le- for the most part, leading off from 1991 on. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and give everyone a little recap of what we spoke about last week? All right, so we, we really talked about a few of the influences of of who the the members of the, the grudge movement really saw as their inspiration and then we got into like the first couple of years you know deranged uh, de- <clears throat> deranged diction was a band that uh, jeff ament had formed and it really led into green river green river was one of those bands that spawned several of the groups that we would see later on uh, members of pearl jam uh, members of mud honey so there was Malfunction, which was Andrew Wood's first band. We talked a bit about the Melvins. We're not going to really go over them today uh, because a lot of their stuff isn't really grunge per se, but they were very impactful on the grunge movement. So we really re- went over that on the first episode. Uh, Soundgarden was a really important one. Obviously, Chris, Chris Cornell had multiple bands in that time period. Uh, we talked about the Screaming Trees and Skin Yard. And Mud Honey, like we just mentioned, members of Green River and a couple, actually just one member of the Melvins, Matt Lucan. And uh, Mother Love Bone, which was pretty big in the scene, really didn't go anywhere because of the passing of Andrew Wood. Uh, we went into a little bit more uh, depth on uh, Temple of the Dog, which was Chris Cornell's band in honor of Andrew Wood when he passed away. Uh, had members of Green River... Mother Love Bone, and Soundgarden. Uh, and then Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, we're going to talk a bit more about today, as well as Nirvana. We're going to start things off today with Nirvana because, uh, it, you know, going from episode one into episode two, um, I think that's kind of the perfect bridge. Uh, and being that 1991, we talked about uh, <clears throat> Nevermind. Nevermind was really that big spawn point of where everything really took off. It, it was a massively selling album. Uh, then also in 1991, we had 10 from Pearl Jam. So that was really the big year 
for the grunge scene to to take off in the mainstream. So now we're going to go what happened when they hit the mainstream. Okay, so uh, before I start, though, I, I, I mentioned something last week about Temple of the Dog and Pearl Jam, and I just wanted to make a correction on it. So I did correctly say that there was one song that both Temple of the Dog and Pearl Jam uh, recorded. It was the same song or same melody. I did not remember the titles and I wanted to just mention that today. Temple of the Dog Temple of the Dog recorded a song called Times of Trouble and Pearl Jam recorded a song called Footsteps. Both versions have the same basic melody. Times of Trouble is more complete. It has guitars, bass and drums. Footsteps is predominantly acoustic and it's got an alternate version that was released on Pearl Jam's Lost Dog albums or Lost Dogs album. Um, that included a harmonica accompaniment. So they're they're both virtually identical when it comes to the, the verse melody and part of the chorus. And I just wanted to clarify that because I did know what songs they were. I just could not remember the titles last week. So that's always interesting to me when when you know somebody writes a, a melody or, or you know the the actual instrumentation of a song, and then takes it to another band and basically does the same song again. That's not the first time, but it's just it's just always kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's it's always funny because when you start looking at the writing credits, so what was you know who claims what from one version to the other, and it's it's uh, interesting. Sometimes some people are not happy about that. Mm-hmm. All right, so we were talking about Nirvana, and so you know Nirvana explodes onto the music scene in 1991, and essentially you know they 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 start touring. And they're they're just all over the place. They're on every magazine. They're on you know all over MTV, and it's you have this band that for for the most part mainstream America thinks came out of nowhere, but they had been around for quite some time. They had been around since 1987 in various forms, but the main form was always Kurt Cobain on lead vocals and lead guitar, bass with Chris Novoselic. Um, so it was the drums that was always a, a, a rotating cast of characters. Um, but the main one that everyone got to know was Dave Grohl, who was on the Nevermind album, and he was with them until um, 1994. Um, so the, the 1992, you know, of course, in that time, albums were still one of those things that came out pretty much on a yearly basis, maybe every two years tops if it was a really good album. Um, but if you were... a uh, for lack of a better term, you were a standard band that, you know, had relative modest success. You know, the record company was like, all right, let's get back into the studio. Let's get, you know, let's keep your 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 music out there in the forefront. We need another album. You know, but if you had a, a successful album, you would tour and sometimes a tour could be extensive and it would bring you into the following year. And then, then you had to record your follow-up album and it was about a two-year, you know, cycle. Yeah, with without uh, the internet relevance had to be maintained in a different way you know touring being on talk shows appearing on mtv shows stuff like that so it's a it's a different world now but obviously back then like you see the the rate at which these bands put out albums was so much higher than today oh yeah i mean it's it's a completely the model is completely flipped because back then you put out an album so you could tour Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you kept people interested in you. Now you're actually touring because 
touring is where you make your money, which is kind of weird. Back then, you you were sponsored uh, most of the time, and and record companies put in a lot of the money to help you out. Where yeah. today, today is completely opposite. You're touring because that is your job. You're touring because that's where you're going to make money because nobody is is making serious money off of record sales. There's very few bands that can yeah. that can claim that. Um. So anyhow, uh, in 1992, the expectation from the record company DGC Records was that, you know, Nirvana was going to release a new album. Well, they weren't up for it yet, <laughs> to put it mildly. No, not at all. <laughs> so essentially, um, what had ended up happening um, was that uh, in, they they did release an album. They released an album called Incesticide at the end of 1992. Um, and that, it was a compilation album of, of B-sides and singles and, and demos and all that other kind of stuff uh, that included three unreleased tracks that were Hairspray Queen, Arrow Zeppelin, and Big Long Now. Um, but there were, you know, it was essentially songs that were recorded while Nirvana was still with Sub Pop. Sub Pop sold those tracks to DGC. DGC put out the compilation. And there was a lot of involvement with Nirvana, especially with the artwork. Uh, Kurt Cobain was given 100% control of the artwork. They, they, the fans already had some of these songs out there in bootleg copies. So this was a chance for Nirvana to basically give um, the fans better versions of those songs that they already knew. And so that's why that's why that album was released. But the follow-up to their big Nirvana, uh, the big Nevermind album was In Utero. That came out in 1993. That was another huge album. Um, it was it was pretty, pretty big for Nirvana. Um, it went platinum in nine countries. It had the singles Heart Shaped Box, uh, All Apologies, and Rape Me. And uh, Penny Royalty was also uh, a single. It was... So it was supposed to be released in 1994, and then they canceled that after his passing, and then they released it in 2014 as a special release, like, hey, you know, this was originally supposed to come out 20 years ago, 20-year reunion, um, or not reunion, 20-year anniversary. They finally released the Penny Royalty uh, single. So even though the song was was pretty big and it got some radio play, that the whole event of, of Kurt's passing just they put a stop to that release actually. So this would end up being their final studio album um, because Kurt Cobain would pass away from a self-inflicted gunshot wound on April 5th, 1994. He was 27 years old. Um, there was a lot behind that. Um, you know, there's just a lot of speculation about different things, whether it was um, because of his addiction problems or if it was just straight up depression or or lots of different speculation of what was wrong with him if you want to look at it that way or it might not be the right choice of words um, what was going on with him let me put it that way yeah it's it's hard to comprehend for anybody i don't think there's necessarily anything wrong and i, I understand exactly what you're saying um but it's i mean that's that's not true if you if you ever get to that point where you're thinking about that or or you know attempting anything like that then obviously there is something wrong and 
there are resources that can definitely help with it. And it's not always easy to reach out. Um, but I think it's important to talk about it and recognize that there are those resources. But, um, man, he, he had so, so much going on and did not like the direction that things were going. Like, being successful was just so against his, his uh, nature. You know, being a true artist and, like... He even in utero was supposed to be called I hate myself and I want to die, which was the way he responded to people when they asked him how he was doing. Like that was just his default response. So like if you said, hey, how's it going? I hate myself and I want to die. So um, obviously there were things wrong. But I, I was listening to an interview with Dave Grohl a bit back where he didn't view Kurt as a tortured artist. He just viewed him as his friend. And sometimes that's all you can see when the people with the people close to you is you don't see that tortured side necessarily because people want to show their best face to their their fans or their their friends and family. And, uh, you know, even Dave, Dave didn't recognize that there was the problems that there were. You know, it's definitely hard to, to, to see things like that because, you know, people put on a good face. Mm-hmm. People, you know, they they hide as much as they possibly can because they don't want to drag people down or they, well, let me, let me even change that. They don't want to spill their problems or what they feel are their problems to someone else. Even though the other person who may be listening, all they want to do is help you if that is a problem because you don't, you know, they don't, you know, it's, it's the person who, who's feeling that way doesn't want to doesn't feel like they want to give someone else their burdens yeah. okay and a lot of times you know we in general the per, the person listening all they want to do is offer help they want to they want us to to assist sometimes i mean there's some people that you know could care less and that's unfortunate but most people are willing to listen most people are willing to help when it comes to anything like that and sometimes you know because you put on such a good face, you know, people like Dave Grohl, who was very close with, with, uh, Kurt, just, you don't see it, you know? Yeah. You say, well, if he was so close, how come we didn't notice? Because sometimes even that person who is feeling tortured on the inside will not show that on the outside. Well, even then there's the business aspect of it too. Like they, they had had some issues following Nevermind because of rights and, um, royalties. So they weren't, all spending as much time together, etc. So even then, like you can still really care about somebody and not be directly around them all the time. And so you don't see everything that's going on too. And so that's, I think that's kind of a common trend that that's going to be something we talk about throughout this episode, because there's so many of these artists that kind of face the same difficulties and face the same outcome as Kurt. So, um, did you did was there anything more you want to talk about uh with nirvana yeah there's a um you know obviously nirvana as a band as an entity um may have ended their their bandship but the 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 company um or the 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 machine that is nirvana never ended never stops um and they have released several live albums they've released a couple of different greatest hits they've released a box set um so there there's still music out there you know obviously nothing new but yeah it, you're you're talking about un- there have been a couple of unreleased tracks over the years that have come out um 
a lot of it is is coming through live live albums and stuff like that. So they're still out there. They're still in the mainstream. They're still extremely popular. Um, you can still hear them on the radio. You, yeah. you still hear them on the radio all the time. And it smells like Teen Spirit is still a a huge song out there. So um, they are still out there, and they're they are still out in the um, the the ether. The, the ether in the in the in the mind's eye in the public's eye in the public's ear they're still out there and and, and very very popular mm-hmm. uh, one i wanted to mention from them also was their mtv unplugged uh was really good that was that was like seven six seven months before kurt passed away so um it is one of the last recorded uh, you know specials and it's, it's actually quite good yeah, I I'm I enjoyed um their unplugged a lot, especially the two cover songs that they did that became big hits. Um which was one was uh, The Man Who Sold the World from David Bowie mm-hmm. and the other one being Lake of Fire, which was a cover of a Meat Puppet song. So yes, uh they that was an awesome MTV unplugged. I really I that was one that I truly did enjoy. Yeah, there there's that in the live at Reading which I think was a really kind of a pivotal moment for them as a band because they were at a point where they were, it was kind of make or break. This was following their, their issues with Nevermind. And so that was in 1992. They hadn't played together for a long time and everything kind of didn't, they weren't sounding good together in their rehearsals. And then everything kind of clicked and the performance is actually really, really good. So um, definitely check out the, um, the MTV Unplugged and the Live at Reading. I think both of those are, are definitely recommended. Excellent. Okay, so from here, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about Alice in Chains, who had already established themselves the year prior. So Alice in Chains formed in 1987. Uh, they, they kind of formed out of uh, Lane Staley's uh, uh, older band, also called Alice in Chains, but it was more of a glam band. Um so the the band original band would be Lane Staley on vocals, uh, Jerry Cantrell on lead and rhythm guitar as well as lead vocals, uh, Mike Starr on bass and uh, drums would be Sean Kenny. Now later Mike Inez would replace uh, Mike Starr uh, in 1993, and then William Duvall would be brought on to replace Lane Staley in 2006. And replace is a is a tough statement when you're talking about Allison Chains because it's not really a replacement it's just a fill-in right and William Duvall's very talented his his vocals are really good and and I, they don't use him enough I think sometimes with the new songs Jerry is really kind of taken over that lead vocalist role um, for the most part but um, the the performances that William does covering uh lane's parts in the live performances is he's excellent he's very good so uh i would not shy away from seeing them live all right so uh their first release was we die young uh that was ep in 1990 a really cool ep um that led into facelift also in 1990 which is three-time platinum album in the u.s um Man, this is a really good start for for a band. Um, the the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that Sean Kinney almost didn't play on the album due to a broken hand. Um, they they rehearsed with Greg Gilmore of Mother Love Bone, but uh, he, I guess he was good enough to to play by the time they were recording the album. So um, that was a, a near miss for Sean Kinney, but uh, 
pretty interesting. I, I really like this album. Um, one thing about Alice in Chains was they're very consistent with their releases. Uh, they, they released a second EP in 1992, which went gold. Uh, the big single off of that one, uh, which was Sap, was the EP. Um, the big single was Got Me Wrong. And uh, the first release, uh, this was the first release with Jerry Cantrell on lead vocals on the song Brother. So you can see that like these two guys, Jerry and, and Lane, both have excellent voices and their harmonies together are just amazing. It's, it's kind of what set them apart on some level from a lot of the other bands because they had two excellent vocalists, uh, but also a little bit harder edge with the, um, the kind of metal sound, especially on Facelift and uh, you know the albums that would follow. But Sap was more acoustic. So um, I thought that was always interesting with their, their two major EPs that they would go in kind of a different direction than that. And then one of the, one other interesting thing about SAP is that uh, there was a performance by Alice Mudgarden, which is basically uh, Chris Cornell and Mark Arm on, on vocals as well as, as Lane. So uh, that was on right turn. So a little bit more of that, uh, as they say, quote unquote, incestual aspect of the uh the uh grunge scene where these guys all just knew each other and crossed over and it's pretty interesting and mark arm was actually the one that coined that that uh <laughs> kind of questionable term <laughs> in 1992 they would release their biggest album dirt uh this was three time platinum in the u.s and one time in canada and australia uh this was their final album with mike Starr. Uh, the big hits off of this one, and I, I, I feel it's necessary to go over it because this was just such a big album, and this is, doesn't even encompass everything that's just amazing on the album. But Wood, Them Bones, Angry Chair, Rooster, and Down in a Hole, all fantastic songs. Uh, that doesn't even cover uh, Damn That River. Um, just um, The whole album from beginning to end, I think, is one that you can solidly listen to. There's not a skippable track on that album. Um, Dave Jordan would note that the band was already in a much darker place during the recording of this album than the first album. He said in an interview, he was talking about how everything was kind of lighthearted and fun when they were recording Facelift, uh, but noticed that there was quite a steep change in their personalities, in their uh, addictions, and there was just a darker feel when they were recording dirt. And I think you can kind of tell that by the, the song content, um, you know, songs like down in a hole really kind of encompass that like already by this point, you know, five years into playing together, um, Jerry can see that lane is on a downward spiral. Um, and that, you know, Mike star has some addiction issues. He wouldn't be long for the band after that. Like I said, this was the final album with him and, but he would leave, during the, or actually, I guess technically right after the tour for Dirt. In 1994, they would record Jar of Flies, uh, another EP. This one went platinum four times in the U.S., uh, and as well as two times in Canada and one time in New Zealand. Uh, this was the first release with uh, Mike Inez. Um, so half the album, really, was released as singles, and I would say pretty much every song on this this ep could have been a single 
this was one where they got together and recorded um, acoustically, and it was more of just a jam session to kind of get back together and figure things out. But everything was coming off so well that they ended up recording it as an album, and they really liked everything that came out. And obviously... The listeners did too because it went platinum four times for an ep that's incredible um this this to me is one of that if you're going to listen to alice and change discography i would even consider this just an album and and include it don't miss this one um in 1995 they released uh alice and change their self-titled album this followed a a video that they did called the nona tapes so those were kind of intrinsically tied together. Uh, this was a two-time platinum album. This was unfortunately the final studio album with Lane. And uh, there was three singles off of it, Grind, Heaven Beside You, and Again. Uh, there was already kind of some... So Lane really got involved with the songwriting on the previous album, on Dirt, as well as with Jar of Flies. Um, but because of his addiction and other issues he kind of strayed away from that in in this one a bit and the band wasn't 100 percent always on the same page there was a lot of the addiction issues that were kind of plaguing production and you could already see like unfortunately they were they to use the phrase the, the phrase again uh really on a downward spiral um, but this led into 1996 with their MTV Unplugged appearance. This was one of the first times that Lane had been in public in a long time. There was some, some production issues, like he showed up with pink hair after you know their first conversations when he had blonde hair, and so they had to change all the lighting just hours before the show. Um, you know, backgrounds had to be redone. There were so many things that were set up just set off just by him changing his hair color. Um, but MTV Unplugged is an incredible performance. I I really enjoy it. I've I it's so surprising to me. I didn't listen to it in its entirety until this year, uh, or maybe it was the end of last year. I I really can't remember, but just recently. Because I had always seen like the, the clips of this song and this song and this song. I'd never seen it in order. And I watched it and it was just, it was one of those that I couldn't take my eyes off of. Uh, so at this point, the band went on hi hiatus from 1996 uh, on and they released a bunch of best ofs, greatest hits. There was a music bank. There was a live recording, which was stuff from 1990, 1993, 96. So nothing new. And then um, in, in 2002, Lane would pass away uh, just eight years exactly to the day um, that Kurt Cobain passed away. So he had a, a drug overdose uh, at the age of 34. And really, uh, that would be viewed as the end of the band. However, um, I think things kind of turned around starting in, I want to say, 2008, 2007. Um, where they kind of decided that they wanted to get back together as as a bit of a healing process. Um, in 2008, they would bring on uh, William Duvall, and that would bring on their first album in, gosh, uh, 14 years. And that would be Black Gives Way to Blue. This one went uh, gold, 
and they would release two more albums from there. The Devil put Dinosaurs Here in 2013 and Rainier Fog in uh, 2018, and they continue to tour to this day. Now, one other sad note at this point was Mike Starr would also pass away from a drug overdose in 2011. He had been involved in some of the celebrity rehab shows, and for me, that was a really hard thing to watch. My my sister back then uh, watched some of those shows, and and I always felt like some of it was a bit exploitative. Um, but it was really hard to see, you know, somebody go through those things, and and I think for some people maybe it can be helpful if they're able to see somebody else kind of turn their life around. But in in other regards. Um, you see somebody like Mike Starr, who was had all the talent in the world and was, you know, really capable of great things. But, you know, you don't see that same thing happen here. And I always feel like shows like that can can be a bit damaging. Shows like that are a train wreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's it's the old adage of the looky lose and and all those people who slow down it on a on a highway to to look at an accident yeah even a car even a car that's just pulled over you know people slow down and see what's going on what's going on what's going on you know and then the worse the accident the slower they go you know and and that's the thing you know you you're they're not interested in those people's personalities they're not interested in those people's lives they're interested in seeing how screwed up those people can get and B, because just like the show, and I, I, I believe it's 100% exploitative, the show is out there, you know, basically, yeah, the, the, the original intent or the intent that the, the, the person who's on the show thinks is supposed to be to get help. Personally, the, the guys in the background, like, you know, uh, all the producers, to me, in my opinion, are sitting there saying, how much more screwed up can this person get? But this, because this is great TV. Yeah. And that, and I find that to be complete bullshit, you know, to sit there and watch some guy going through the, the, the depths of hell in their own personal lives and be on TV and other people see it. You know, there's there's a difference. And here's our, our, our uh, weekly Metallica reference. There's a difference between what we saw or what fans saw on some kind of monster um, than compared to these TV shows. Because one, the band chose to do that. Two... Um, they, you didn't see James in rehab. You didn't see James at the bottom of the pit that he felt he was in. You saw the band disintegrating in front of you. Whereas shows like, you know, uh, that that Mike was on, these you know celebrity rehabs, you're seeing them go through shit. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for that shit, you know, personally. You know, yes, some of them have, have been successful coming out of it. I would say most of them have not. Because they're not really getting the the right help. They're just getting help on television. And to me, that's just not the way to do it. I I 100% agree. For me, it's... I I don't like reality TV in general. But I really don't like the ones that that are just kind of like pointing... You know, following people that are in a, a bad situation. That are not helpful in any way. So... Yeah, I don't think it's helpful whatsoever. Um, but on the subject of Alice in Chains, um, this is, man, a fascinatingly unique band. Um, all these albums that we've talked about or that you've talked about um, that they've released over the years have all been exceptionally good in their own way, 
because of their their unique uh, how do I put it they're just their unique style of of music that they've created between mm-hmm. the harmony vocals between Jerry and Lane between the 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 dissonant sounds that they create and then you add that to Lane's unique ability to sing in such a monotone way yet be perfectly musical is is absolutely amazing when you listen to Alice in Chains. I, I mean, they're not my favorite band. When I look, you know, when you look at the top 10 of my bands, you know, they're not my favorite band. But there are elements of songs that they do that are pretty up there for me in terms of of the songs that they've written and released in terms of singles, you know, like I really, really enjoy some of their songs. One of my favorite songs of all time is down in a hole. Um, and that's not even one of the songs that is most unique in that, in the sense of the way they, they play just, just choices that they make in the songs that they sing and, and songs that they play are it's just incredible stuff. And I've, I've seen them since the beginning for the most part, or since they've hit the mainstream, I met them in 1991 when they opened up for uh, the Clash of Titans tour for Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth. Um, so that was uniquely special to know that I met them and and what they turned into. Because I met them when they would no one knew who they were. Yeah, you know, Man, Man in a Box had just broke, and even then that that song wasn't super, you know, like popular. It was getting to that point you know i think i think they may have gotten or they may have gone gold by the time i saw them but they were you know still you know there's plenty of songs out there that have gone gold that people don't even realize is out there um so they were they just they hadn't had the platinum success yet and then they follow it up with you know oh we're you know we go from this really cool crazy first album and we're going to come out with an acoustic album I mean, you, you, that right there set the tone for their eclecticness. But that's part of the Seattle scene. The Seattle scene's all over the place in terms of you can be, a you know, a, a metal act like them, and then you could do something completely soft the next day, and no one's going to think twice about it. That's the really cool thing about the grunge scene, the grunge attitude, the grunge era. You know, you can do those things, and no one thinks twice about it. In in mainstream metal, you do that, and you're you're a complete sellout. You know, you you can't have Slayer play, you know, Angel of Death, and then the next day they they got an acoustic a ballad you know, song. <laughs> I can't even imagine <laughs> a ballad from Slayer. <laughs> no. no, you can't. Oh, I um, love you. <laughs> okay, so then you know. Uh, so they released Sap, you know, then, then they come out with this monstrous album in dirt. That album is just absolutely incredible. I remember when that came out in 92, um, I was working at the record store. I had just gone to my new store and that was near my house. And I basically took the copy right out from underneath, uh, one of the other guys, uh, other managers that were there. And he did not, <laughs> he did not appreciate that, but I, I was a big fan at that point. Dirt's an amazing album front to back. Um, and especially with the, the, the lead single wood that came out, that was just absolutely incredible. Uh, jar of flies comes out a couple years later that just the, the, the sound, the, the production quality of all that stuff is just amazing to me. Um, I've, I've enjoyed their career. It's unfortunate, you know, that they've 
had the ups and downs and the and the fits and starts and stops and all that stuff throughout their career. And I'm glad that they were able to, once they went through their mourning period after Lane passed away, I'm really glad that they were they, they came together as brothers, the, the three of them, Sean, Mike Inez and, and Jerry, and said, we want to continue. Went out of their way. They found Singer. And then it, when I say found, it, they weren't even looking for this guy. This guy just happened to be at a show that they were a part of like one of these uh, benefit shows or something like that. Or I can't remember. And he was there singing for something. I think that's the way the story goes. And he, you know, they saw him, they were attracted to him and, you know, cause it wasn't like an audition thing from, no, I don't right? believe so. I think it was one of those just kismet things, almost like, you know, what happened with, um, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson. You know, you just see this guy right. that, that just fits. Right, exactly. So, you know, to get William Duvall in, in, in the band, I mean, I heard, like, I, you know, you've heard the, the new music and you you've, you've, you hear they, they've got that Alice in Chains style, right? But you know it's predominantly Jerry Cantrell driving that. And then, you know, I, I listened to some some stuff from William doing some with the, with the Who, the, the uh, Mongolian metal band, the, the Who, H-U, Who. And you can hear it. You can hear that he has that element that Lane had. Not that he's doing what Lane does, but he has that element that Lane no, he's had. He's a super talented singer. Like, I, it, yeah, I'm. I'm happy he's he's doing that. That you know his own thing, but also a tribute to Lane every time he he sings his songs. And I say that because he is so talented, and he respects the the you know, material that came before it. Right. Exactly. And for me, when Lane passed away, um, that was, that was, that, that, that was one of those things where like, you know, I've kind of already experienced several people passing away, um, in, in the music industry and put it that way. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Kurt had passed away, you know, several years earlier. And it was one of those things where it doesn't surprise me because you, you knew, that Lane had a problem and it was almost kind of one of these things you were expecting to hear the news, mm -hmm. you know, which is sad to say, but you knew he had a problem. And when the news broke that, that they discovered his body, it was for me, one of the most heartbreaking things. It wasn't one of these things where like, like when Kurt passed away for me personally, it didn't do much in terms of, Oh, I wasn't heartbroken. And I and I don't want to sound mean and, and, and cold. It's just, Nirvana was not one of the my, my favorite bands. Yeah, it's I don't take it that way at all. It's just you you didn't connect with the music in the same way. So why would you feel that way? Right. So it was one of those things where, you know, but like for instance, like like I was a bigger fan of Pearl Jam. So like if if and the way that Eddie Vedder had 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 talked in interviews, and we'll talk a little bit more about them a little bit later on. But the way he had spoken in interviews, it was almost like I was expecting him to do what Kurt did, because sometimes he talked like he was just on a, on the, on the edge of a cliff. But you know, it was one of those things like, oh yeah, well Kurt did it now. I I, I can just expect Eddie to do it. It was just one of those weird things. That's the way I felt at the time. But the, but with Lane, you you knew it was an addiction issue and, and you saw that he was going down that spiral and he was getting worse and worse. And when finally, you know, 
uh, the next band we're going to talk about kind of has a little bit to do with it. When you finally got the news that he passed away, it was so heartbreaking because you saw and, and knew that amazing talent and it was never going to sing again. And for me, it was one of those things that, I mean, I was, I don't want to say I was depressed. I was kind of like in shock for like a week and, and just sad, not a depressed sad, just sad for the situation. And I listened to down in a hole for a week, virtually like a week straight. And I was just like, man, this is really tough. I think Alice in Chains was just one of those unique bands that they they had a little bit of crossover appeal to even people that really didn't like the the grunge scene. Um, still to this day, you can hear songs from them. You know, not just their newer stuff, but you, you hear their their old stuff on the radio. Um, there's a lot of respect for for Lane and and just Alice in Chains in general from other parts of the the metal community. So I I I've come to really enjoy their music. Um I didn't really listen to them when I was a kid, but as I got older I got more into them and um I surprisingly last year they were my most listened to band, which was shocking to me. But uh you know, they that to me is a testament to to how good they are. Absolutely. So as I alluded to uh just a, a little bit ago, there was another band uh, that was uh, there was another band that Lane was involved with, and that band is Mad Season. Um, Mad Season is basically a Seattle version of a of a uh, supergroup. Um, they start they formed in 1994 um, uh, with Lane Staley on vocals, uh, with Mike McCready from Pearl Jam on lead guitar with Barrett Martin from the Screaming Trees on drums. And uh, they had uh, gotten a bass player named John Baker Saunders, who Mike McCready had met in rehab um, during the the making of Pearl Jam's Vitology album. And so they joined forces and they made this band. And I had heard about this being in the record store and I was absolutely fascinated that something like this was going to happen. And when it came out, I was not disappointed at all. I knew this wasn't going to be a metal thing. I knew this wasn't going to be this overly crazy kind of album. But I didn't expect to get what I got. Um, The album Above came out in 1995. I would say it was a very slow burn. You know, it was one of those things that just kind of built um, they released a single, uh, "River of the Sea." That was the big, the big attraction to the album. Um, later singles were "I Don't Know Anything" and "Long Gone Day," but it was "River of the Sea" that basically, you know, uh, solidified the album as being a legit gold album, which it became. It is. I don't know. It's it's one of these things. It's so unique. The whole album. It is so uniquely Seattle so uniquely grunge that it, it it basically spans everything about the grunge era in this one album. That's my opinion. You know, being the fact that the, the three of the four guys were from Seattle and they all experienced and grew up in that scene, it's absolutely astonishing how good and how representative of that scene that, to me, this album is. 
There's there's something for everybody who likes grunge in this between grunge metal and grunge rock and grunge all and all that crap. You know, it's just a grunge scene wrapped up into one tidy little album. Yeah, I mean, for I I would say your description is accurate because it it is so much of like just being a super group of members of that, which in in some way some of the other bands were also super groups right because they well, yeah but. you know you really think about it and was was it um mother love bone is is kind of a super group in a way well it's funny you said it because you know malfunction leads into you know malfunction and green river blend into Mal- mother love bone but mother love bone really you know with their dis- disbanding pearl jam is really the, the super yeah that, that well also in temple of the dog right so, well, well, yeah, Temple of the Dog was definitely a super. But this group, is but more even so then, it w- because because they had they were already established, you know, like those other groups were not right. as established. Like now, right? No one knew who Pearl Jam was yet. Yeah, this point. is 1994. Um, you know, three years after Nevermind. You know, uh, what three years after uh, uh, Ten? Three years after, um, or two years after dirt so th- like these are these huge albums are already out and you've got guys from pearl jam or mike mccready from pearl jam and, and lane staley working together and that alone is enough to make it a super group right <laughs> so oh, yeah um i don't know if you were going to mention this but i i guess just briefly so even after lane left in 1997 they tried to continue on as as a band everybody was still working together. Mark Lanigan, who had recorded some of the guest vocals on the album, uh, became the lead singer, and they changed their name to Disinformation because they could no longer use the name Mad Season. That didn't really turn in, in, into anything, but it's just kind of an interesting side note. Yeah, um, they uh, they tried to continue. It's just, it was just going to be hard. You know, the, the main guy... The songwriter, <laughs> the song, the, the guy who wrote all the lyrics, yeah, the all guy, the lyrics, yeah. uh, the, the 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 main vocalist, and the guy who did all the artwork is no longer there. I mean, it's sort yeah. of kind of like you know Nirvana. It just was one of those things that was you can't really continue. I mean, but I get it. It was a super group, so it's one of those things. Is it going to be a situation where you can uh, replace a guy and keep going? It's you know, it's not that easy sometimes. You know, uh, the album was was released before. Oh no, I'm sorry. The album above was released after, you know, everything that had gone down with with Nirvana and stuff like that. So the scene itself was was changing dramatically, but this was a a, a great, you know, example of that that scene, you know, that Seattle thing. One other thing is they they later on released uh later that year, they released a, a a live VHS, put it that way, a live video um, of them performing at the Moor, which is a famous venue in the Seattle area. Um, Alice in Chains' facelift, uh, the live faceless v- VHS was from the Moor as well. And so they're playing this venue. And I mean, it, people are nuts for this because, you know, they're seeing, you know, they can see Lane Staley. That's one thing, you know, and then you got Mike McCready and they're, they're big, you know, everyone there is fans of all the local bands and Screaming Trees, Allison Chains and, and um, Pearl Jam are all local bands. And so the place was nuts. 
And uh, the album, I mean, excuse me, the, the video itself, you know, is representative of how crazy that was. It's just a really cool video and to see all the fans and stuff and, and, and the, the, the musicians just all, you know, absolutely having a, the time of their lives. It was pretty awesome. And that uh, Live at the Moor was released on the CD and DVD um, eight, is it eight, no, 18, 18 years later. In uh, nineteen, in, excuse me, in twenty thirteen, uh, as a special uh, deluxe edition package type of thing. So it, it, that it's out there, it's available, it's really cool. If you don't have it, get it. It's pretty neat. Um, they did end up releasing a song later in nineteen ninety five uh, called um, "I Don't Want to Be a Soldier." It was on the John the, the John Lennon tribute album, "Working Class Hero." That song, um, since it, since that tribute album wasn't really big and it wasn't very popular. Um, not a lot of people knew about it, but that song was later featured on the deluxe edition of Above that came out uh, that that like doubled the size of, of the album in terms of all the extra bonus tracks that were put on there. So that's Mad Season. That is the good news, though, about like some of these ones that release, you know, or I mean, the anniversaries, I guess, is the way I'm putting it. Um, you know, 20 years later, we're getting releases of, of stuff that that was kind of on VHSs or um, bootlegs and that kind of stuff. You see that a lot now with, with bands. So I, I am liking that you see a lot of these things. Like Megadeth, uh, was it last year, had one of their famous bootlegs officially released? Oh, the one from Boston? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you see more and more of this stuff happening, and so it gives us access to a lot of these things that were harder to find, which they shouldn't be hard to find. No, you know, and, and, and uh, speaking of which, I mean, Record Store Day is a big uh, is a big type of it, it's not a, a it's not an anniversary thing, but it's it's a it's a big event that allows for bands like these to put out these anniversary issues because, um, as you mentioned, you know, Allison Chains' first release was the the We Die Young EP that was re released last year. Um, uh, on vinyl yeah. again it was it had been out of print forever it was re-released last year um allison chains put out faceless live um on vinyl several years back um and so it's it, you know it's it's a hot seller i mean it's a hot commodity now if you want to get it it's very expensive but it's out there and it's available um you know obviously things like uh Live at the Moor. I don't think that was ever released on vinyl, but that that would be something that that people would probably be interested in, you know, or even, um, you know, uh, a vinyl. I, I do know vinyl version of Above was released, uh, but that was released again later on after 1995. So things like that. Record Store Day helps a lot of those things. So that's that's a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. So one thing, one last thing to mention about um, Mad Season was that. Uh, bassist John Baker Saunders would also pass away on January fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine, due to a drug overdose. So yeah, it, it's it's a tough one because you know, obviously when when you have that history, it, there's always the possibility of relapsing, and that's that's what happened to him. Um, but you know, at least we have the 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 record of a lot of these guys like on on in music form. We have art that exists and will always exist uh, that that we are able to at least have that part of them. So I think that's a, that's always kind of the the bright side, which it's tough to find a bright side in some of these situations. Um, so 
moving on, um, we have Screaming Trees. We discussed the most of their their early career last time. Um, again, lead vocalist Mark Lanigan on guitar, Gary Lee Connor, rhythm guitarist Josh Hom. Uh, he was with the band from 1996 to 1998, so we know him from uh, Queens of the Stone Age, and um, bassist Van Connor and drummer Barrett Martin. So they had some drummers before that, but in this era of 1992 to 2000, he was the drummer. That was when they broke up was in 2000. Uh, so in this time, they released Sweet Oblivion in 1992. Um, so this had the, their biggest thing, single, uh, which was Nearly Lost You. It appeared in the movie Singles, which if you haven't checked out that, that soundtrack, if you're a fan of grunge, that's definitely one you should because this, uh, most of the bands from the grunge scene are on that soundtrack. Um, they had Dollar Bill as well, and then they released Dust in 1996. Uh, this also had two singles, and Mike McCready uh, appeared uh, a guitar solo on Dying Days. Um, and then in 2011, uh, 11 years after they had broken up, uh, Last Words, the final recordings, was released. Um, this was recorded two years after Dust, but was shelved after the band broke up in 2000. So the production basically took two, three years because they were having so many issues. Um, and then it was finally released by Barrett Martin's own label 12 years later. So that's, that's a long time. Um, Mark Lanigan, unfortunately passed away last year. Uh, there's been no cause that was revealed. So he, he at least lived to, uh, you know, much older age. And then, uh, Van Connor passed away this year from pneumonia. So the screaming trees will not be having a reunion, unfortunately. Um, at least not that we can tell, uh, some of these bands have reformed with one member, you know, later and it's, it's either hit or miss with that kind of stuff. But, uh, Screaming Trees was a different one, had a, had a little bit different impact, more of a psychedelic sound. Um, their, I think their affiliation with the grunge scene, at least through my eyes, is more about who was in the band and how some of these guys crossed over and they all, you know, had that that relationship they, they knew each other they were all from the seattle scene because uh, they had a, a quite a bit of different sound some of the, like if you listen to them compared to alice alice in chains like very different but still had that same kind of attitude the, the 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 look was all the same so i get it that they were they were in the grunge scene but i think if you're into more of that psychedelic stuff then you could probably find more to like than some of the other bands. You know, the one thing I, I listened to them the other day and I liked what I heard, but it, it was relatively eclectic in, in, in more of a, a basic rock band kind of way. Um, I really, you know, their association with grunge is, is merely because they're from Seattle. It, Cause to me, you know, yeah, maybe personally they had the same attitude as the grunge scene, but I, th I think musically it didn't reflect itself that way. Um, you know, they were very, um, how's it, it's hard to say, they weren't grungy at all. They were, they were clean. You know, they, they, I likened them a little bit to Soul Asylum in that regards. They, they were not uh, this really heavy band of some sort. I mean, they, there's, every band has some sort of 
heavy element that can come out in songs, but um, not necessarily a consistent heavy vibe to them at all. They were a rock band. I mean, Nearly Lost You is an amazing song. I really like that song, and it, it it pushed that single soundtrack pretty good. Um, but it's not it's it's a rock song. It's not a hard rock song. It's not a uh, you know hard rock in comparison to you know a Guns N' Roses or an ACDC. It's it's just a rock song, and yeah. it's a, and it's a good rock song. So they, I I liked what I heard from them, you know, and I had I have a few of their albums, but it's just one of those things where it's, it was you know. I never got into them because I like heavier stuff, you know? So it was one of those things where I did not really, um, get too far into them. But from what I heard recently, I, it, it's, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. It, again, we always say this, but sometimes we find new stuff that we like because of doing this show. And it, it's, it's been very interesting to, to listen to some of these bands that I never gave a chance to because I just want, like you, you hear like, oh, it's grunge. And then you associate it with say Pearl Jam or something like that. And if you don't like Pearl Jam, then you go, well, I just don't like that kind of music. But I think that's a bad attitude to have. I think, you know, give stuff a chance, even if you haven't heard it before and you might find something to like. And even then like bands that I do like the first time I've heard an album, maybe I didn't really connect with it the first time and then sometime down the line I go oh wow I like this so it's interesting it is interesting you know it's it's one of those things where like I said you know it it's it's good it's just not necessarily the same or it's not of, of to me it's not affiliated with what they are known for I guess you could say yeah um, but you know like Barrett Martin playing the drums that he plays on on Mad Season on the Above album, it's awesome. I love his sound on there. You know, but that could have been just the sound of the band. But you know, he does a great job and I mean the production on that album is awesome. All right, so now that we're fully, you know, into grunge and and grunge is basically taking over Americana, um other bands are starting to, you know, adopt the sound or adopt the attitude or adopt the style or the lifestyle, you put it that way. And some bands, although they didn't necessarily think they were adopting that style, were kind of forced to adopt the style or wanted to, and they, they were kind of forced to. One of the bands I'm talking about is Stone Temple Pilots. They were formed in 1989, um, and they were together all the way up until 2003. They, they kind of broke up. And then they reformed in 2008, and they're technically still together to this day. Well, and I say technically, they are still together to this day, um, but they have had some starts and stops along the way for a variety of different reasons. The original band contained Scott Weiland on vocals, um, then uh, Dean DeLeo on guitars, Robert DeLeo, his brother on bass, and drummer Eric Kretz. Um, later uh, versions of Stone Temple Later versions of Stone Temple Pilots had Chester Bennington from Linkin Park on vocals, and their current lead singer is Jeff Gutt. Uh, he's been there since 2017. So like I mentioned, they're not from Seattle. They are actually from San Diego, but they adopted the sound, the, the style, the look, the attitude, everything. Was it an adoption that they that they wanted to do? We don't know. We don't know if it was forced upon them or, or it suggested highly to them kind of thing, but they, uh, they definitely 
took the sound of grunge and they ran with it. Um, their first album was Core. It was released in 1992. It's an eight times platinum album, two times platinum in Canada and a platinum in Australia. Uh, the big singles off that album were Sex Type Thing, Plush, and Creep. Now, when I was working for the record store, one of the buyers for the record store comes up to me and says, here, I, I want you to listen to this and gives me a promo copy of the first album core and says, this is a new band. Um, it, I'm getting pushed by the record company to buy a lot of this. Can you please tell me how, you know, how good it may or may not be. Okay. I took it home for the weekend. I listened to it and immediately I was blown away um, by the production. One, it was very, very good production, um, but they had a unique sound to it as well. So it was a, it was a clear production, but the, the, the drumming had its own sound. The guitars had its own sound. And Scott Weiland, you know, sounded like uh, a different kind of version of Eddie Vedder. Put it's it, very similar to Eddie put, Vedder. Put it that way. Um, but, the you know, I put it on, and the first thing I hear is Dead and Bloated. And I was like, wow, this is a pretty cool song, you know, and then it goes into sex type thing. And I'm like, whoa, this is a really cool song, you know, coming, you know, having completely engrossed myself in Pearl Jam the year before and, and adopting Soundgarden and listening to Nirvana and Alice in Chains and all this, this was just right along those lines, you know, and I'm like, this is really cool. And then they, you know, you, you get deeper into the album and then they have songs like Plush and Creep and, and it's, you see the eclecticness and you're like, yep, that's, that's, you know, a Pearl Jam style. Yes, this is, you know, definitely uh, the grunge style, the eclecticness, all the, the different things you can go from being acoustic to heavy electric to, you know, being basic rock, you know, so it was all over the place. I mean, Cracker Man's a great song on this album. I love that song. So, I came. I went back on Monday. I gave her the CD. I said, "Here you go, um, pretty good." And she goes, "Oh, you can keep it. I have another one." I'm like, "Okay, great," because I really like it. <laughs> and uh, I, she goes, "So should I buy a lot?" I go, "I would buy a lot and keep buying. You know, this is going to be a big record. Um, definitely going to be a big record. And one of the few um, records that I've quote unquote reviewed for someone that actually hit big." <laughs> Because I've had a few where I was like, nah, this sucks. Or I can't believe this band did it. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll give it this way. I was I was all over Red Hot Chili Peppers' um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I thought it was a great album. But when I reviewed it, the one negative I put down, I, I, I had sterling review for, it, for the album as a whole. But the one negative I said is if they don't learn to control their language they're never going anywhere and so uh how um, how boy, were you wrong <laughs> yeah how wrong i was <laughs> um but then i i i got um i i did a review for a newsletter for octung baby from youtube and i couldn't stand it out couldn't stand it i said this is terrible and how wrong I was <laughs> and not that i you know not that i hate youtube because i really like some of the early youtube stuff you know, the, the stuff when they were, you know, post-punk kind of new wave-ish, you know, type of thing. But they, that album, it was so different. You know, they had already changed a lot from, you know, when they came out with the Joshua Tree. But Octung Baby, it was, you know, the sound changed. The, 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 there was, now they became, they were more about style than they were about 
the actual music. That's the way I felt. And Octung Baby, I was just like, this is not that good. And damn, was I wrong because there's a lot of good songs on that album. <laughs> you know, in general, <laughs> if you're a YouTube fan, uh, it was a really good album. I mean, there's some songs on there I think is, you know, pretty damn good, even just if you like rock in general. But I was wrong. So I was right about Core from Stone Temple Pilots, which is a good thing because we ended up not falling behind at the record store. But um, they would release album Purple two years later in 1994. That went six times platinum in the U.S. Um, with singles The Big Empty, Vaseline, and Interstate Love Song. Um, then a couple years later, um, so they're on, a, they're on a pretty good roll here every two years. They release uh, Tiny Music, songs from the Vatican Gift Shop. Uh, that went double platinum in the U.S. Uh, and that was, uh, the big singles on that one was Big Bang Baby, Trippin' on a Hole in a Paper Heart, and Lady Picture Show. And from that point forward, um, they really started to kind of, I don't know if you want to say take your time or take their time. So the addiction issues that Scott Weiland would, would have uh, throughout the rest of his career um, started to kind of surface and, you know, things started to kind of change for the band. 1999 was their next release. So that was three years after um, Tiny Music. And then uh, that went platinum because they had a couple of cool songs on there, but it wasn't the same band that had recorded Tiny Music or Purple or Core. It was definitely a lot of change within the band. Um, then, you know, a couple years later, they released Shangri-La-Di-Da. That went gold. You can see that the trend is going downwards at this point, you know. Um, so there was things that were obviously going on in the background that the, the we as fans don't know about. But two years later, the band would break up. Um, you know, and they had just released the uh, their greatest hits album, Thank You, after, uh, and then they break up uh, five days after it was released. Um, a lot of it had to do with um, Scott Weiland and his addiction issues and uh, conflict within him and the rest of the band. Um, so that's, you know, the Scott Weiland portion of it, and then they broke up, essentially. And then they would get back together, you know, in 2008, and you know they did some they did some touring, and I actually think during that time they tried to uh, the band itself tried to continue, to, but they didn't continue as um, Stone Temple Pilots. If I'm not mistaken, they continued or the band themselves got together with another singer, and I believe that was called Army of Ants. And the crazy thing about Army of Ants was there was this lack of chemistry between the band and the singer that basically culminated in them not continuing because the singer didn't get uh, Dean DeLeo. He just did not get him. And Dean was kind of like, man, but Scott gets me type of thing. And that's what led to the reunion because uh, I forgot what song it was. It's on Stone Temple Pilots, um, Hickory Dichotomy. Dean DeLeo in an interview turns around and says, I tried to give the song to, and I can't remember the name of the singer from Army of Ants. I tried to give the song to our singer and he just didn't get it. He didn't understand it. And the minute that I gave it to, to, to Scott, he understood exactly what I was trying to come up with. And that's how Hickory dichotomy, you know, was, was a, a single for us. I mean, they, they definitely have a chemistry like that. 
that band worked really well for the longest time. Unfortunately, you know, drug issues do get in the way. And, um, you know, you could definitely tell on that Stone Temple Pilots album. I remember when I, way back, I used to work at Target. And uh, when that was in 2010, that album got released. And we had a lot of copies for a long time. Uh, there's another one we'll talk about in a little while that we had a lot of copies of for a long time. But uh, that was a different band. Um, but that 2010 album, it's all right. It has a couple good songs on it. Um, but they just didn't have that same chemistry that they did when they were, you know, in their early days. All right. So to follow up what I was saying before, it's not Army of Ants. It was Army of Anyone was was the name of the band. And the singer, oddly enough, I, I didn't realize it was his, uh, who it was. It was actually Richard Patrick from Filter. And so he just could not get Dean DeLeo and he didn't understand you know where Dean was coming from but you know Scott and Dean had such a chemistry together that when they decided when they started recording their their album their reunion album Stone Temple Pilots that was released in 2010 you know Hickory Dichotomy which is the fourth song on the album was one of those songs that Scott got that that uh Dean was trying to come up with so I I just want to say, so I I think I know why you said Army of Ants because there was the song Army Ants on Purple, and yeah. that's why I didn't even question it because it makes you know how like when one or when members of a band will leave or something and they'll use like a song from them as a title for something else, and that's that's where I thought you were going with it because I hadn't heard of that Army of Anyone, or if I did, I can't remember. Yeah, I, but. I mean, I was into Stone Temple Pilots at the time, and I so I would follow what was going on, and and I remember um, seeing that they there was when they reunited, they they had a concert, and one of the first songs they, that they played uh, on television, or I don't know if it was MTV or whatever it was at that time, um, that was out in public was the song Hickory Dichotomy. And so that that's why that just kind of ingrained in me on that one. But yeah, I, I knew they had a song called Army Ants too. And I, 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 that's probably where it was, came from, you know, somewhere in my subconscious, yeah. you know. But I knew it was Army of Something, you know. And it's funny because um, they are uh, <clears throat> definitely a different kind of band. They're unique in that way. Um, but in 2013, you know, they, they again, they had broken up with, Scott. Now the band itself did not break up and they went ahead and they, they moved on using the name Stone Temple Pilots, much to Scott's chagrin. Scott at this point had done a lot of his own stuff. He was a solo artist and he had joined um, Velvet Revolver, which is another super group that we're not going to talk about today, but they, cause they were not grunge, <laughs> but not at all. <laughs> but, um, and, and many of you guys that are listening out there know who we're talking about. Um, but the band continued on and they chose Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park to be their singer. And that was a really cool collaboration. And quite honestly, when they released the High Rise EP in 2013, that was a very cool album. Um, I mean, it was an EP. It was only a few songs. But the, the song at a time was just typical Stone Temple Pilots. And obviously, the the, the relationship between Dean and... And, and Chester was pretty good because it seemed like Chester got it and he was totally into it. I mean, for me, I, I guess I kind of get it, but at the same time, like I listening to it and maybe it's just my, I, I'm not a big Chester fan. Like I, I, uh, appreciate, you know, his, his passion and, and, you know, his fan base and everything like that. But I just felt like he did the best he could 
but it didn't work for me. No, and I can understand that. I mean, it's it's one of those things. You got you got to think. The band at this point, what are they? They're they're uh, ninety two, so they have been together since eighty seven. I mean, we're just thirty something years into their career at this point. You know. Yeah. And uh, it's not one of those. It's not simple to to continue to to, to change singers and and continue to write good music. I mean, they. It's not one of those things where you can sit there and say, "Oh, they ran out of musical ideas." You know, the song at a time I thought was pretty cool, and it to me it worked. But you're also talking about a band who really have been in and out of the spotlight so much that when you come back to the spotlight and you have something like that, it's got to be outstanding for you to really kind of hit again. Yeah. Regardless of who the name is on, you know, that's singing for you, if if you don't. Uh, if you don't hit because you know every song is good, you know especially with an EP, if you're going to release four or five songs or whatever it was that they did, you know you better hit with it, you know. And and uh, they really it was it had five songs on it. Out of time was was a single. Black Heart was a single. But to me, it's one of those things. Sort of like um, uh, Alice in Chains, Jar of Flies. If you're going to release an EP, you better hit. But they were still in the middle of the, the, their career. This one was where they've already gone down to the bottom and they're trying to come back, and it's hard to come all the way back up. But I think bringing on a singer like Chester Bennington, who has a massive fan base with Linkin Park, was was a good move visibly. You know, having on the cover Stone Temple Pilots with Chester Bennington sells albums. Regardless, right? It, right? I mean, it it may not have gone like multi platinum or anything like that, but people that otherwise wouldn't have picked it up see, oh, Chester Bennington, I like, you know, I love Lincoln Park, I'll buy that. So from a marketing perspective, I can see how that would work. Like from me being a fan of the band, you know, going, yeah, it doesn't work for me. Like, I it's still like there's also the people that have that like. uh the OCD about I have to have every album by this band, you know. So yeah, and so unfortunately, the the relationship between Chester Bennington and Stone Temple Pilots would be short lived. It only lasted a couple years more um, when Chester decided to leave uh, Stone Temple Pilots and basically put all his attention back into Lincoln Park. Um, so the band was left without a singer again, and after searching for quite some time, they came up with. Um, they didn't come up with. They found <laughs> was it Jeff Gut, mm-hmm. and so he has been their singer since 2017, 2018 when they released their 20, 2017 20, is when he. So it took him a couple of years to find somebody that really worked, and he's he's quite good. Yeah, I mean he he's from what I've heard he's pretty good. I I have basically at this point have kind of checked out of the Stone Temple Pilots uh, fandom that I had. Um, not that I, you know, that's good or bad is again, it's one of those things where they're not at the forefront, kind of forgot about them. I've heard that they've got the singer Jeff gut. I'm, I'm going to admit, I have not heard Jeff gut. I have heard that he is good. I have heard that he's done well. I have not heard any of the Jeff gut stone temple pile stuff in, uh, I would I would at least check out the singles. They're pretty good. I mean, I have a hard time with any of these guys that get their start on like America's Got Talent or X Factor or you know stuff like that. Where, where you know they they're very talented. Don't get me wrong, 
but a lot of times they don't have like songwriting ability and and i i'm maybe i'm off base saying that but i don't think i am because you see a lot of times they'll release like an album and there's 43 songwriters on it and they're not one of them um but from that that's terrible <laughs> but from what i understand he's he's part of the songwriting on all of these these uh the two releases they've done with him so but to counter your argument there and not and not not to go against what you're saying uh, the reason why that happens, and especially with a, a contestant that comes out of like an X Factor or an American Idol, is they're not given the choice. Um, they're very no, early on. Yes, early, early on. on. Very but, few. But you're six, seven albums in, and you still don't know how to write a song. And you know, it's like some of these guys that that are replacement singers for the big bands. You know, mm-hmm, right? Like their solo stuff isn't very good. <laughs> you know, it's not everybody can write music, but it do, that that doesn't mean that they're not skilled at, at singing. But Jeff Gutt, from what I understand, is involved in the songwriting. So he does have, you know, an input into the what the, the band is releasing. I think he has a songwriting credit on pretty much every song on their last album and then partial on the, the first one he did with them. Well, on the first one, they actually have it listed as all tracks written by Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, but if you if you read more into it, you can see like that they, they've they talked about, you know, that everybody was kind of involved in this song and that song and whatever, even though it's, it's written by, quote unquote, Stone Temple Pilots. Right. You know, exactly. I mean, and that's just basically a way of, of sharing everything. You know, there's you're, you're trying to do a collaborative effort, so you want to go ahead and try and keep everybody happy you know at this point also for for artists like stone temple pilots they've they've already gotten their career or they've already had their career Mm -hmm. so you know they've already gotten their money you know for for lack of a better term yeah so especially in today's music industry there's not a lot of money to be made so that being said you know it's why why sit there and say okay you know why why put them on the outside right off the bat you know do it as a collaborative effort or at least you know make it seem that way on on paper and and go from there because you don't want to you know start in that regards you know a relationship with a new guy that you know you don't know and and say okay you know we're not going to give you any songwriting credits you just you know you're going to make the guy feel like a hired gun rather than a, a partner so yes, start the relationship on a bad foot is never <laughs> exactly. never the way to go. We've seen that time and again when we've talked about different bands. Right, and then looking at the credits for the for the the latest album that they have that came out in twenty twenty, um, you know, Gut is on. They got ten songs. He's on eight of the ten songs as a co as a co writer. So I would assume that some of that co writing is probably the lyrics. Um, and where you know Dean and Robert are the uh, the songwriters for the music, but it just says it says music here, but it doesn't say lyrics. So I'm going to sit there and say that is probably him on the lyrics. So, but anyhow, that is uh, Stone Temple Pilots. They oh, we got to got to mention one other thing that's kind of important. Um, throughout Stone Temple Pilots' career, as we mentioned, Scott. Wyland would come in and out of the band. Uh, he, they had an up and down relationship, especially after they hit it big. Um, and in 2015, Scott passed away due to a drug overdose. Um, I believe while he was on tour with them, if I'm not mistaken, or he may have been on a solo tour. He was on a solo he tour. He was on a solo he had, tour. He, remember, he he 
left the band and and well, he was fired in 2013. That's right. He, he was doing a solo tour, and he he had some issues on the, the solo tour. Right. Yeah. Honestly. He was he was officially fired from the band uh, in after the 2010 reunion. It was in 2013. He was officially fired. So yeah, it was it was um, it's unfortunate. It's another one of those you you kind of realize that this guy's on a path of self-destruction and it's unfortunate that you know he could not overcome his demons um and it's unfortunate he passed away in 2015 and then unfortunately also chester bennington would uh pass away due to suicide um in 2017 and uh you know that was kind of following the passing of another singer we're about to talk about um and that's soundgarden um so soundgarden is uh again started in 1984 lasted till 2000 i'm sorry and lasted till 1997 they did a reunion in 2010 that to 2018 and then a 2019 reunion as well uh so chris cornell was the the brainchild behind the band uh he started playing guitar in 1988 so he not on the first release but um lead guitarist kim thale the bass at that point so that we're going to talk about uh from 1990 to 1970 also platinum in Canada, Australia, Sweden, and UK. Uh, single Spoon Man, huge song. Um, Day I Tried to Live, Black Hole Sun, My Wave, Fell on Black Days. Fell on Black Days is also huge, but Black Hole Sun is one of those songs that really kind of permeated the culture. Um, just, I'm not a big fan of that song myself, but I definitely understand the impact. Uh, I'm a bigger fan of Fell on Black Days from that album myself. Um, the earlier punk sound is just now fully gone from what they're doing. This is really the album that even after Bad Motorfinger, they really found who they were. Um, it took you know quite a bit for, for Chris Cornell to find that like freedom in writing all of his songs. He he oftentimes restricted himself thinking like I got to do what the fan base wants me to do because I'm part of this scene and you know just having those interactions with producers that really told them just cut loose do you uh was was really what developed super unknown even more so than than uh bad motorfinger um so this this album was released to universal acclaim it's huge um again like i said six time platinum really just defines you know that this was a mute an album that just appealed to everyone and sometimes you can say like well there's that merit that that bands will get where they release a huge album like say um 10 with with pearl jam it's so big that and the people will just buy the next album just under the the name alone, but I don't really think that's the case with with Super Unknown. I think it it, it went on its own merits because of the the strength of the singles that went along with it. Um, Down on the Upside came out in 1996. This was platinum in U.S., New Zealand, Canada, and Australia. Um, singles Pretty Noose, uh, man, 
very prophetic and hor- horribly so, um, but very good song nonetheless. Um, three other singles released on that album, um, but internal tensions kind of caused the band to break up in 1997. This was this was a really big downturn from super unknown it didn't hit in the same way and it just kind of tore the band apart because they were already having some issues like sometimes when you hit that big moment you you go i i don't know where we're gonna go from here i don't know how we're gonna follow this up and that was a bit of what they were dealing with so they were they were having some internal tensions and they wanted to break up before things got really bad and i i that's kind of commendable um, most notably out of the, the, you know, aftermath was Chris Cornell formed audio slave with the guys from rage against the machine, um, sans Zach De La Rocha. So, um, that's a really cool band. We're not going to be talking about them today, but, um, Chris Cornell, I think even found a bit more freedom in doing a different project than, than Soundgarden too. So I, I really enjoyed, you know, seeing the evolution of his, his vocal style. Uh, they would reform, like we said earlier in 2010 and they released King animal in 2012. Um, they released the kind of, um, autobiographical, uh, been away too long, uh, by crooked steps and halfway there. And, uh, so there was some criticism from some of their peers. So most notably from Billy Corgan, who said, you know, they, they're just getting back together for money. They're not writing new music, stuff like that. I, I totally disagree. A band can get back together for any number of reasons. And, and sometimes it's not lucrative to make new music and you're enjoying what you're doing, playing the older stuff. So I, you know, that guy causes problems with everybody so i'm not going to take that too seriously but i you know i think king animals not bad unfortunately during all of this the on and off reunion stuff uh chris cornell would pass away in the same way as um chester bennington would just a couple months later which really had a big impact on chester um and really left a legacy. I mean, he has a daughter that's uh, also a singer. And um, Chris Cornell was just one of those guys that, like, y- you could, you, you almost couldn't imagine this happening to because he's very successful. But from what we understand, like, he's just, he was just a very, you know, again, tortured artist that, you know, sometimes you can't see it. But, um, you you have to understand like these guys were so loved and it's hard to understand why somebody would do something like this but um he left quite a legacy some fantastic albums behind and um you know again once again if you're ever feeling these way and you'd never or you feel like you don't have any recourse or any other um you know anybody that will listen to you that's just simply not true so even if it's anonymous and and sometimes even better if it is anonymous call one of those helplines and just have somebody listen to you definitely i mean you you there is someone out there and there are ways to get help so um please it's not always easy to talk to somebody close to you so that's why those helplines exist exactly um you know chris cornell and soundgarden um 
as I mentioned in the previous episode, I, I mean, I, I saw Soundgarden open for uh, Guns N' Roses, New Year's Eve, 1991, Joe Robbie Stadium. I would say more than half the people there did not know who Soundgarden was. Um, more more than half people that were more than half the people that were there that didn't know Soundgarden had no idea who Chris Cornell was and any idea about their music. And to me, they they did really well. I mean, obviously they had already released Rusty K. Um, Rusty K. They had already released um, Bad Motorfinger. So Rusty Cage had already, you know, become a single. But they just, it wasn't one of those things where Guns N' Roses' crowd or all of Guns N' Roses' crowd is going to know who, who Soundgarden is. You know, half the crowd at Guns N' Roses shows at that time in 1991 were there because they knew about a song called Patience or Sweet Child of Mine. You know, they didn't know the deep tracks. And, you know, in order for you to know that if you knew the deep tracks, you knew who Soundgarden was. That's the way I look at it. Um, so super unknown comes out, man, killer album. And like you said, it it stood on its own. I think the initial, the initial surge of sales was because of the success of bad motor finger. And then you have a song like spoon man comes out and it's super cool, but the continued success and the big six times platinum success that it had in the United States was carried on the back of a song like fell on black days and black hole sun especially black hole sun i mean it's just huge song um me personally my wave is a song that i like on that album that and spoon man um i i totally dig my wave um and then you know from there as as you mentioned you know it just kind of went downhill um and uh, the the songs weren't the same anymore. I mean, the band wasn't the same. You know, down on the upside was definitely, a, in my opinion, a step back. They lost something along the way, and it's not something <clears throat> that I would sit there and say they they lost the desire or they lost the 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 ability. It's just something didn't. The songwriting just wasn't there. It did not connect properly. At least. You know. I think to to a large degree, it is that fear of what do you do next. Like Slayer even talked about it after they did uh, Rain and Blood, where they said, like, how do we address this? Because this last album was so huge. How do we live up to it? And so even a band like that, that has that like aggression, you know, unbridled aggression, I guess is the best way to put it. Like they they had a, a fear and concern of just doing the same thing. Bands like um, uh, what's what's the the brother of uh, Rob Zombie's band called um, Power Man Five Thousand. Power Man Five Thousand. They they recorded an entire album which they shelved because they were following up the, one of their biggest albums. And I'm I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not the biggest Power Man fa- f- uh, fan, but um, they had a, a huge album that I will look up shortly. Um, that they were trying to follow up and they just decided to shelve the whole thing because they have that concern of like, what, you know, where do we go from here? And I think that's kind of what happened. And and if somebody like Chris Cornell, who's already dealt with depression his whole life, like, you know, it's not easy to, to, it's easy to kind of give in to those, those thoughts. Uh, the star, the album was tonight. The stars Re- revolt, and then they had a shelved album called Anyone for Doomsday, which you could download for free on their website years and years ago, because they just decided we're not going to release this. I I have never personally heard a single Power Man Five Thousand song that I know of. <laughs> they they were really big for me when I was in middle school, high school. 
um, the, they, there was a whole community, there was a big thing called the anime AMVs, where people would make their own music videos ripping like footage from anime. And Power Man 5000 was just the big one, or one of the big ones, where like people would take footage of, of these TV shows and, and apply it to the music. And the, the people would, would pass them around on CDs at school. So you would like get these videos off of uh, LimeWire or Napster and stuff like that, or just download from YouTube or wherever, and then put it on a CD and trade it with all your friends. And that's kind of how Power Man 5000 got really big in my school. And I know it happened in a lot of people's like that age group too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it was just not my scene. There was so many things going on. And, and then during that time, it, it was it, nine, 99. Yeah. yeah. Like, during, during that time, I mean, there was that whole, I look at it as this way. There was the, you know, you've, you've, it was the height of new metal. And at the same time, there were bands that would eventually be lumped into the new metal scene that wasn't necessarily new metal. Um, and it, it was it was that whole period of Ozfest was yeah. big, and you, it was all these different bands and and stuff like that. And they were just one of the ones that I just never got into. There's so many bands that, that are out there, I just never got into them for one reason or another. You know. Um, so Soundgarden, you know, was, I, I really enjoyed them for a long time. And when they broke up, you know, they, they broke up so that they wouldn't hate each other, you know, and they, they didn't want to break up in bad terms. Um, and that's just, Chris Cornell decided he wanted to do a solo thing for a bit. And then, you know, he gets together with the guys from Rage and they come up with Audio Slave and they have tremendous success. It's a completely different career for Chris and it's super cool. But even that ran its course. And it was one of those things where now they, what does Chris do from this point forward? And Billy Corgan kind of had a point. I, I don't put a lot of stock in what Billy Corgan says, you know, that, 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 you know, they weren't writing new music. They did. They came out with King Animal. Was it good? It was okay, you know, but it, it was to, to, to levy the criticism that, you know, they're not, they're just, he's in it for the money and, and he's, he's in it because they're not writing new music. He doesn't, that was completely uncalled for. However, I did hear a report or I did see a report of something or someone interviewed to mention that Chris Cornell, the reason why he ended up getting back with Soundgarden was a financial decision. Uh, I don't know if it was because, oh, it's a cash grab, that kind of financial decision, or one where it's kind of like it's a steady income kind of decision, and this is what I need right now type of thing. And so that's how it, and that's what I heard. Not necessarily the whole reunion type of thing, but just continuing on after the album came out. You know, it was like, I need to stay in Soundgarden because, you know, I'm not going to be able to tour as a solo artist and make a, a, a ton of money compared to or keep my family, you know, afloat compared to what Soundgarden will bring in. That type of thing. And that's that's. There's, that's reality. Exactly. Like, that's reality. It's not, there's no, you can't sit there and, and, and people say. People got to work. <laughs> exactly. You got to live. You got to feed the, the, the kids. You got to feed the family. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it, it's it's wrong if it reflects in the music. It's wrong if, if 
if it reflects on the attitudes you have towards the other people you're with. But as yeah. long as everybody's okay, you know, and everybody know, you know, is they're doing it because, you know, a lot of these bands, they do it because they have to. You know, and not and I, they can go back and do something else. They can go back and be a plumber. You know, but do they would you rather be a plumber and make uh, you know and do that all day or make the same kind of amount of money and you're touring and playing rock music to ba- to fans out there? I kind of think that you're gonna play the, the the music, but you know, if you're if you're making the same money, if you're not making the same money, then I can understand. Hey, if it's not worth it, and you go back to being, you know, go back to the union and and do what you got to do. I, I respect I respect that either way, because you do what you have to do to put food on the table, and that's that's always respectable. Agreed. All right. Uh, so next on the list is um, another band that. Um, oddly enough, they are from Seattle, but they kind of got lumped into the Seattle grunge scene, but they're not really grungy. Um, Candlebox, uh, formed in 1990. They, so they, they were formed during the, 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 the rumblings of the, the national, uh, attention that, that, that grunge was getting. Uh, they, they were Basically, formed in 1990, they lasted until 2000, and they got back together in 2006, and they are still together to this day. Um, band members include lead vocalist Kevin Martin, um, and uh, at the time the the band um, formed, they they included lead guitarist Peter Klett, who was there for the the main duration from 1990 to 2000. He was part of the reunion and has since left um, the band in 2018. Um, Barty Martin was part of the original band um, on bass. He was there from 1990 to 1999, was part of the reunion for a little bit, came in and out of the band since then, uh, and departed in 2018. And Scott Mercado was on drums for the uh, original run from 1990 to 1997, came back for the reunion, has also since departed. And um, Dave Cruzen um, of Pearl Jam fame, so we're going back to that everyone kind of knows each other thing in Seattle, was part of... Candlebox from 97 to 99 was uh, also part of them from 2015 to 2017. Uh, since then, they've had a lot of members in and out. Kevin Martin is the only original member left. Um, so that's okay because that happens. That's the way things are nowadays. Um, Candlebox had initial success with their first album that came out in 1993, which is self-titled Candlebox. It four times platinum in the United States, uh, had singles, Change You, Far Behind, and Cover Me. Three of those four songs that I just mentioned are staples on my playlist. I really, really like You. I like Cover Me. I like Far Behind. Um, It's just super cool songs. Um, They came out with Lucy in 1995, two years later. That also went gold. I had some singles, uh, Simple Lessons, Understanding, and Best Friend. And then in 1998, they released Happy Pills with the singles It's All Right, 10,000 Horses, and Happy Pills. Um, that's the main that the main portion of their career. Um, they have released albums since then in 2008, 2012, and 2016. And they just released one a couple years ago, 2021. Um, those albums, respectively, are Into the Sun, Love Stories, and Other Musings, Disappearing in Airports, and wolves. Um, so, but their, the bulk of their career was during the nineties and that, uh, I was into them and they were the first act to sign 
to Madonna's Maverick Records. And that's important to me because they opened up for Metallica in 1994 during the Shit in the Shed tour. And it was the last night of the tour in Miami. And they had a celebration for Candlebox at Madonna's house in South Beach celebrating the fact that the album went gold. Well, guess what? Metallica left. Left me hanging backstage all night long until Jason showed up at 3 o'clock in the morning to sign autographs for people. He never left the venue, but apparently someone told him, hey, there's people waiting out there for you. And he comes out at 3 in the morning, sign autographs. I'm stuck in Miami downtown at 5 o'clock in the morning. And my my uh, ex was not happy. (laughs) That's a funny story, but um, I'm not going to get into it any mother, any more than I just mentioned right there. Um, So yeah, so Candlebox was pretty big. I mean, they, they had, they had a good run. Um, They just really changed styles after 1998. Um, I mean, that that first run from 1990 to 2000, they still had that kind of grunge sound. But when they re- reunited, it's like the early stuff was grunge post grunge, whereas everything after is really alternative rock. Like they say it's post grunge or grunge. No, it's 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 really very alternative. So, um, yeah, that first album really i would say fits into the grunge scene as far as the sound and everything goes lucy maybe a little less so and happy pills even maybe more or less so than that um but uh yeah i think really the only albums worth talking about in this context are those first three albums absolutely and that and realistically like you said and and you and i've had this kind of discussion and disagreement is that you know i didn't i don't think of it to be very grungy in that in that regards Mm -hmm. but they were in they were coming out of that scene and they were definitely one of the late comers coming out of that scene more to the effect of who from seattle can we sign oh look there's this band that's got some popularity (laughs) you know and they you know look the songs were good i like you I it, I the, like you too. The, the song <laughs> the, the song you is is very unique in 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 a way. Um, I like a lot of elements of that song. It's very different than your normal song. Mm-hmm. Um, Far behind is really cool, and then um, uh, cover me is another one of those songs where it's just one of those ballads that crossed over. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, the, the 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 album definitely became successful on its own merits. Where I think you know sometimes in these scenes, bands will become successful just because they fit into the scene and people are trying to find more material. But like the, you know this this definitely was on its own merits. But you can see that the the not necessarily the quality of songwriting, but the appeal maybe just isn't as wide as things went along. Right. Okay. All right. So where does that put us now? Uh, so we're going to briefly talk about Mud Honey. Um, Mud Honey was an, is one of the bands that still exists today, still putting out music consistently. Um, you know, from very very early on in the scene, uh, Mark Arm uh, on lead vocals, Steve Turner 
um, on lead guitar. Matt Lucan was on bass from 1988 to 1999 and 2000 to 2001. And then Guy Madison had, has taken over on bass from that point on. And then drums, Dan Peters. This is a band that has had very little turnover, has been together all this time and consistently releasing music, which I think is very impressive. Like it's not often that you see bands that, um, stick together for so long and, uh, you know, don't have 40,000 members. Um, so they released Piece of Cake in 1992. Uh, they had singles Suck You Dry and Blinding Sun. Um, then they released My Brother the Cow in 1995. Tomorrow Hit Today in 1998. Uh, since We've Become Translucent in 2002. Under a Billion Suns 2006. The Lucky Ones 2008. Vanishing Point in 2013, Digital Garbage in 2018, and Plastic Eternity in 2023. Um, I don't believe that one's out yet, but uh, it will be this year. Um, so, the, from from this point, like I would say they they've kind of gone away from that early sound and more towards punk blues. So, if you like that aspect of where grunge came from they they kind of went more back to that like that with the bands that inspired them um and then found their sound like mark was was one of those guys that like the reason why green river didn't work for for very long was because there was such a difference in aesthetic and and um you know the the way that they wanted to do music and so they they took that more of that punk garage sound that, you know, was a little bit more aggressive, whereas Pearl Jam would end up being more depressive in a, in a lot of ways where, um, you know, they're both relatively successful bands. I think Pearl Jam definitely found way more success, um, you know, connected with the audience more. Um, but, you know, they're both still around playing music to this day, which is very impressive. Um, one interesting note I would say is that, um, on since we've become translucent in 2002, they actually returned to sub pop. That was the first time they, they recorded with sub pop, um, since 1991's every good boy deserves fudge. So about 10 years later, they're back to their, you know, original bread and butter and that's kind of a, a nice story from that perspective um but yeah not much else to say at least on my end um mud honey's one of those bands that i didn't pay a tremendous amount of, uh, of attention to i found some some songs that i do like you know listening to this i, I went through most of the albums and if not all of them and uh you know it's if you like that garage punk stuff then You'll probably enjoy Mud Honey, but uh, not metal enough for me. <laughs> um, exactly, I go along with that, saying the same thing. That they're not metal enough for me to to enjoy them on a regular basis. I did listen to the first couple of albums um, last week while I was you know preparing for this portion of the show, and you know I enjoyed what I heard, um, but not enough to sit there and say, oh, I want to listen to this all the time. It's just that's just not my thing. That that whole. Um, garage punky kind of thing is just not my thing like i've never gotten into social distortion okay they're they are a rock band 
and they're kind of like a, 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 a with a punky element. It's just not my thing ever. Yeah. So you know, I've I've seen social distortion, you know, some live stuff on television, and it's pretty cool. But again, not my thing. You know, I prefer my stuff to be a little harder in that regards when it comes to guitars and sound and drums. But you know what? I I do have you know the times where I listen to soft stuff in it, but. I don't know. It's just as a whole, you know, Mud Honey just didn't do it for me. The really cool story I got with uh, out of Mud Honey is kind of a, a weird side thing with um, with Matt Lucan. Um, Pearl Jam wrote a song called Lucan um, several years uh, ago, and that was obviously based on bassist Matt Lucan. Bassist, right? Yeah. Um, and what happened was he had um, he was a really good friend of Eddie Vedder, and what happened was Eddie had a, a a stalker that was basically coming by his house and freaking him out, and so he would go over to Matt's house and hang out. And Matt was one of those people that kept Eddie in check as far as being a rock star, and he would just literally like be Eddie's friend. It wasn't a matter of, oh, I'm, I'm Eddie's friend because Eddie's a rock star and I'm a rock star and we're rock star people. He was one of these like, I'm no longer the rock star, but Eddie's my friend and I'm going to put Eddie, you know, bring Eddie down to like down earth again type of thing. And so they were just really good friends and Matt would keep it real for Eddie and so he would give him all sorts of shit about songs being too long and, and stuff like that. So basically, Pearl Jam wrote a song uh, called Lucan in honor of, uh, of Matt. And it was uh, a one minute long song. And so to basically to remind Eddie that he's not necessarily a rock star. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really cool. All right, so that brings us to Pearl Jam, which is the last band that we're going to talk about tonight. And we kind of talked uh, about them a little bit last week on the previous episode with, and their debut album, 10. But um, this brings us into uh, the post-10 era of Pearl Jam. Uh, and to go over really quickly, they started in 1990. They're still together to this day. Eddie Vedder on vocals, Mike McCready on lead guitar, Stone Gossard on rhythm guitar, Jeff Ament on bass, and Matt Cameron is their current drummer. Uh, although for, for, the, for the purposes of this episode, it includes Dave Abruzis, uh, on drums from 1991 to 1994, and Jack Irons on drums from 94 to 98. Jack Irons was also famous for being Red Hot Chili Peppers drummers, uh, drummer back in the day, and then Matt Cameron from 98 on. the The success of of Ten obviously meant that you know they they're, they're going to put out another album. So what what are they going to put out, and what is it going to be like? The band had changed so much, and, and and I say that because you know when you look at the at the interviews that that progressed from the time that they started, uh, in in or that ten was released, and you know with all the success that that, that came with it, there was a, a very visual change with Eddie Vedder uh, during interviews over that time span, and so kind of people were, were, were wondering what to, what was going to happen with Pearl Jam on their next album. Well, in 1993, two years later, they released Versus. Now, I was at the store, at, at, at one of the stores that I worked at, the record store, and 
when this album was coming out, there was so much buzz about this album. It was huge. And when Versus came out on that Tuesday, we could not keep it on the shelves. We had boxes and boxes of it behind the the, the cashier, the register area, because people were just coming in. New Pearl Jam? Yeah, here you go. CD cassette, which one you want? You know, it was it was flying out the door. So much so, 800,000 copies later, it set a record for being the biggest first day, first day sales at the time. That's crazy. Um, I mean, it, it's the record since then has been broken. But man, at, at that time, it shattered, shattered the record of first day sales. I mean, 800,000 in the first day, platinum in, a, in less than a, a week, or platinum in two days, basically. Nuts. Nuts. I mean, it was gold the first day. So that's pretty pretty crazy. Um, they followed that up a year later with Vitology, um, which also went... So before that, plant, uh, Versus went seven times platinum in the US, five times in Canada, four times in Australia, and platinum in New Zealand. It had four big singles, Go, Daughter, Animal, and Dissident. Um, I... It's an album that I truly, truly, truly enjoy. I got to see them on tour um, during this tour, the Versus tour over in Miami's Bayfront Park. What a crazy show that was. I mean, they had a gate that, that separated the lawn from the seating. Um, you know, like you and I, we go to the Woodlands and we see, you know, in the amphitheater, we see that there's a lawn section. But there's no uh, there's no fence that stops them from going there. I mean, it's probably a seven foot wall <laughs> that, yeah. they have, that they have to jump down. But there's no fence, and so I mean, quite honestly, if they wanted to jump down, the, if if it was anything that happened like what happened at this show that I saw from Pearl Jam, it would have been quite. Uh, there would have been no stopping it. This the, at, at this Pearl Jam show I went to, I believe it was in 1993. They they were shaking the fence so much it finally snapped and it fell over and people just charged towards the front. So people were just going down the aisles and filling up the aisles and no one could stop anything. I mean, I, w- I was one of them. I was waiting back there when it went down. I was like, well, shit, everyone else is going up front. So I did. So I went too. I mean, I probably got to row 30 somewhere around there before the crowd physically stopped me from going any further. So it was it was almost a riot at that at that show i mean that was it was pretty insane i i i'd never been a part of anything like that before in my life it's pretty nuts it is pretty nuts but um in 94 they released vitology uh, which was um platinum five times over in the u.s and canada three times platinum in australia and platinum in new zealand um this tour for this album was a little different uh, at this time um, I was deep into being into the fandom of Pearl Jam and they were uh, they struck up a fight with Ticketmaster because of the same things that we complain about to this day service fees uh, uh, let's see how, how can we put it the the basically the the I call them inconvenience fees. Yes, they're inconvenience fees. I'm sure it, I'm not it, the only one who says that. I mean, this is I don't want to use too strong a word because I don't want to get like you know banned for whatever reason. But this is that they're really just stealing money from fans. Uh, I mean, that's the only way I could put it. 
Ticketmaster is is an entity which is way, way, way too strong and too influential in the music industry uh, because of the fact of the service fees that they charge. It's simple as that. Because of the fees that they charge, they have way too much money and way too much influence. And now at this point, you know, it's way is way too far down the road to change anything. Um, but they, you know, in 1994, Pearl Jam tried to take uh, the fight to Ticketmaster, and Ticketmaster has such a hold on so many venues across the country that forced Pearl Jam to play because they didn't want to use any Ticketmaster venues. So they they were forcing Pearl Jam to play in like baseball stadiums that had been abandoned for years that, that no one was playing at, fields, um, all sorts of different, you know, uh, basically venues that Ticketmaster wanted nothing to do with. And they were playing there. I, I saw Pearl Jam play during this tour on at a baseball stadium that um, even Major League Baseball was no longer a part of. It was the old um, stadium for Baltimore Orioles that the Orioles had already left, I think, at that point. So it was it was pretty pretty crazy. And but you know, it, it was one of those things that they took the fight. That fight led to Dave Abruzis being fired from the band because it was one of those, if you're not with us, you're against us kind of things. And Dave said, hey, man, let's just tour already. Come on, let's go. And they said, uh, if you're not if you're not behind this boycott, you, you're not part of the band. So they, they fired him and they hired Jack Irons for the next four or five years. And uh, that's how Dave left. <clears throat> so there's so much animosity there that they did not invite Dave to be part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. They, he was not um, inducted with the rest of the band. And that was one of those weird things because he was a vital part of those two very successful albums. And even part of... he did a tour for the first album, too. Yeah, he, did, he didn't record on 10, but he was all over. He was on MTV's Unplugged. He was he, was, he had basically been part of Pearl Jam since the, their success because Dave Cruzen left before the band went on tour for, for 10. Matt Chamberlain was only a fill-in drummer for a short period of time. So Abruzis was there very early. And um, the fact that, that, that they did not invite him to be part of the, the, the uh, members that got inducted into the Hall of Fame, you could tell there's still some animosity there. That's a shame. It is a shame. Um, so a couple years later, they went on to release uh, No Code in 96, Yield in 98, Binaural in 2000, and they've been basically a consistent band for the most part. Um, they've released Riot Act in 2002, um, the self-titled Pearl Jam in 2006, Backspacer 2009, and Lightning Bolt in 2013. And then the biggest gap in their in their in their their uh, discography comes with gigaton in 2020 so seven years in between those two albums so they've been consistent they are our big touring act um they are one of the few bands that basically say we're gonna play and people show up and it sells out you know they're they're they've become that band um and so they they've had some success and they've gone so far away from the the original grunge style that they've had that um they're they're just a they're a good rock band now i've always got respect for pearl jam i'll always love their first bunch of albums um i if i had an opportunity to see them again i probably would go um 
and you know, I don't, I, I it's one of those things where, uh, is it the same? Nope. It's not the same, but is it the, still the band that you love? Yes. It, it's still the band that I love. You know, that's just one of those kind of weird things. So one, one thing that I, I have to note about Pearl Jam is back when I worked at Target, um, Backspacer came out and that was a Target exclusive and we had to set up a, you know, huge display for it and, and all this stuff. And, and I remember I had at my store probably about 70 copies that just sat, sat on the shelf forever. It, it, and it was a good selling album. I mean, it went uh, gold in the U.S. and I think it was platinum in some other countries. Um, but, you know, it was just one of those that because it was a Target exclusive, we had so many. And they would do this thing where if if there was too much of one item at one store, you'd scan it and have to send it to another store. And every time we scanned that one, it, it was like everybody had that many extra. So it just never went away. So on my shelves, and I had to put them out. That was like a rule. Was I had like seventy copies, it, like taking up half of my my CD department. <laughs> you know what albums like that right now? That that like the latest Adele album. Apparently, oh, really? it's like yes. Like I, I I'm part of a bunch of different um, groups on Facebook, and so I'm like a comp compact disc collectors group and a vinyl collectors group. And both of them are you know, always show pictures of you so often. Well, Adele's still hanging out here at Walmart, you know, it's just it's like, yeah. And you look at the show and, and it and makes just, it look like it's not a good selling album. The same thing happened. I, I want to say it was Prince had an exclusive album there and, and Prince was filling the shelves up as well. And it was, it was like a good selling album from what I remember. It just like, didn't move because everybody had it. <laughs> well, the, the the thing is, you know, at the time that you were were part of it, I mean, record sales were already in the the decline. That's mm-hmm. so that's the amazing part. Nowadays, yes, certain things are in the decline, and yet they're putting out records. You know, they're, they're giving stores records like it's like it's a you know nineteen eighty two again. You know, where albums are flying off the shelves. It's just not the same. People are not yeah. going to record stores or to Walmart or to Target to buy, you know, hundreds of, of copies of vinyl and CDs. It's just not happening. The um, only time that, that they do sometimes is when it's an exclusive. Like ACDC had that Walmart exclusive. And then the, like this release or the one that I was just talking about, Backspacer, was an exclusive. I think Beyonce had one that was. And, you know, some, some of the bigger artists like that will have exclusives or Taylor Swift was a big one where like every five seconds you, you had mentioned that the first Pearl Jam album, you know, people coming in, I got to have the, you know, like, do you have this one? Do you have this one? And it would be like, the funny thing was always that they would walk past the display, the massive display that had like seven hundred copies on it and they'd be like do you have this album i'm like, you literally just walked past it you know? <laughs> um trust me <laughs> going into the record store you could you could you could put it right before they even enter the area and they'll walk and right they'll past just it. walk right past it they don't right pay attention mm-hmm. all right so did you have any more to talk about with pearl jam uh before we kind of move on um no not really pearl jam was pearl jam yeah, i mean <laughs> they, they there's nothing you can take away from them as far as like they have continued to put out albums. They've been very consistent with their lineup. Uh, 
despite you know having the the drummers change and and that aspect but matt cameron's been there since 1998 and he was he was with those guys uh for the most part pretty much everybody uh when they did temple of the dog so they have that history together um you know versus seven times platinum album um 10 was a diamond album vitology being five times platinum i mean those those are some massive albums and they've continued to put stuff out that is successful today and you can't rate the new stuff in the same way that it was you know when when the the you know records sales were massive because we have streaming now it really alters the perception of things too um but you know they they've been a very very successful al- or a very successful band with mostly maintaining the same membership and that's very impressive um but one last thing there was a couple bands we want to mention real quickly that people associate with the the grunge scene and you know we have some opinions on that but uh the first one being uh smashing pumpkins they're from the uh they're from chicago illinois um they were influenced by bands like the cure and new order so they had some of the same kind of um vibe but not necessarily the same sound and they're not from the same scene per se uh so people would associate them with with grunge i think mostly because because they there wasn't really good place to place them and it, and i i oftentimes think that music categories are more based around marketing than anything else is where do we place these guys so they sell um what are your thoughts on smashing pumpkins um i've never was a big fan i think i liked like two songs from them because they're the harder edge songs Mm -hmm. um but their big album um Oh crap! What was melancholy? The name? Yeah, the melancholy the, double yeah. CD. I mean, they there's literally out of all that, there's two songs I like on there, and that's it. You know, uh, one is uh, what's it? The, the song about rats in a cage. <laughs> and, uh, despite all my rage, uh, I'm, I'm still just. just uh, that's all I know. I don't yeah, know the name of the song exactly. <laughs> uh, that's how much <laughs> I know about that. And there's there's another song. Um, talking about oh god is it no it's not disarm that's a, that. the one i know is from the meme where the 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 guys on the roller coaster and it's wee <laughs> <laughs> and they extend the wee isn't that the little piggy on the roller coaster uh i don't remember a pig but i remember the the it's just a clip from a roller coaster. I'm sure somebody's altered it from the original, you know, at this point. But that was the the, the original meme was just this guy rolling, riding roller coaster. It starts with the, the intro to the song and it starts where he goes, wee, but the wee stays on forever. <laughs> um, so the two songs I'm thinking, I'm thinking about are Bullet with Butterfly Wings and Zero. Those are okay. the two songs that I was, I got into. Other than that, you know, my my wife has this album, the CD. It's so it's part of my collection, and I don't like 1979. I don't like uh, Tonight Tonight. I mean, it's not that I don't like it. It's just 1979 is that Wii song, yeah. Yeah, it's just 
just, just not into it. And, you know, of course, I wasn't into them to begin with, so I didn't like Siamese Dream either, you know. And that's, yeah. a, that's the song that had, that's the album that has a song, oh, was it um, Disarm on it? So, but, you know, these are big albums and they, they were part of the scene uh, because, you know, when you're touring at this point, it, you become part of the scene, you know. Yeah. You're associated in some capacity, right? I mean, and they were they were definitely later on in that in that time frame. I mean, Siamese Dream came out in '93, and and Melancholy came out in '95, so they were already at the end of the scene in that regards. Mm-hmm. So, but that's you know that's the extent of my Smashing Pumpkins. So the next one is Hole uh, from Los Angeles, California, kind of the same as uh, as Stone Temple Pilots, um, but. I think their main association being that, you know, Courtney Love married Kurt Cobain in 1992. Um, you know, I would say they're more of a punk band, but because they have that link to the grunge scene, they, I mean, they have one or two albums that have some grunge sound, um, but kind of unique also, because if you really look up at all these lineups for the grunge bands, there's, they're, they're dudes. They're all, they're all guys, um, you know, whole being fronted by a woman kind of sets them apart in, in a way, too, as far as uh, sound. But also, um, like I said, more of a punk band, I would say. Yeah, I mean, they were definitely more of a punkish kind of band. Um, Very yeah, unique. Exactly. And, and, you know, there's some cool things about the fact that Courtney Love was, the, you know, was also the rhythm guitar player and the, and the lead vocals, but she played... She played basically guitars just like her husband, just really bad <laughs> as far as <laughs> and I'm not saying bad because she doesn't know how to play, but yeah. bad bad in the terms of it's just it's just this the style that they use is just kind of it's very punky. It's very I'm gonna do yeah, it my punk way. Punk wasn't known for like shredding guitarists. I mean, I have the, the big <laughs> album that, that Hole has. I have you know, was it Live Through This? I, I have that one. And it's it's a, not a bad record. Um, but it's not my thing. I mean, I like that one song that was famous for it and they signed So basically DGC signed them because of, I guess, in my personal opinion, it would be mostly because of her relationship with Kurt Cobain. Um, yeah. but, uh, the album was all right. It wasn't bad, but I never really was big into them whatsoever. Same. Uh, the next one is silver chair. Came out in 1992 to 2003, 2005, 2011. Uh, they really changed a lot over time, but their first album came out in 1995 uh, when the members were only 15 years old. They're from Newcastle, South Wales, Australia, so very far away from Seattle scene. Um, but their their sound was so heavily influenced by bands like Pearl Jam and, and uh, Nirvana that you can't help but de- like you can't deny that there was some of the similarities there um you know a little bit more immature with the songwriting which is could be expected when you're 15 years old um <laughs> but i remember i really liked this album when it first came out um i had it on cassette tape and i listened to it quite a bit um what do you think of Silver Chair? Um, I look. I bought the CD, so I thought they were pretty good. Um, I was a fan of this of the song Tomorrow. Um, so I, that's that's pretty much you know where it it started and ended for me with Silver Chair. I mean, I got Frog Stomp. I you know I, I thought Tomorrow was pretty good, but I didn't really go on anywhere after that with them. Same. Um, I had moved on to a different style of music by really not 
far off of that. Um, so I was more into tech death and <laughs> stuff like that by that time. Um, but when I first heard it, I liked the album. I thought it was cool. I mean, they, they had some success after that. I mean, they, they basically had, um, you know, that album was double platinum album, but the next two albums were gold, you know? Yeah. So, and they really changed their style. So their fan base changed as well. Right. I heard, I heard a song a few years back from them and, and I, I was like, I don't know. Maybe I was watching something that was talking about them, and I was like, "That can't be the same band, same members throughout their entire run." Yeah, and you know, and they 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 were still big in their in their native Australia, uh, having gold albums and platinum albums. But the the certification levels are a little bit different. You know, to go platinum over there, you got to sell seventy thousand records, which you know in Australia population's different. Too, yeah, the population's so. different. So in Australia, that's a lot. You know, uh, to go gold is thirty five. To go platinum is seventy, and then to go diamond. Now that that's a that's a lot too. Five hundred thousand copies to sell to, to to be a diamond album out in Australia, but you know they, I mean shit, they've sold you know a lot of albums in Australia, so they did really well for themselves. Give them that much. Oh, for sure, and I, I know they've been either kind of broken up or on hiatus since 2011 um i know the lead singer went on to do some other things um but as far as in this context that right you know the, really that first album was the the one would that we you know would relate to this subject and then uh the last one i wanted to mention was bush um from london england um they went from 1992 to 2002 and then 2010, they've been playing since. Uh, their debut, 16 Stone, and their sophomore album, Razorblade Suitcase, were really heavily touted as, as grunge albums, which I would agree with. I think they have that kind of sound to them. Um, but again, my, my thoughts are always that grunge is that scene, you know, is that Seattle scene. I don't think there can be a grunge band today because it all had to do with that group of people in that time period in that self-contained space of Seattle. And yeah, like the bands that were around that time, like 1992, absolutely. There were bands that fell into the same kind of marketing category and maybe toured together and had some experiences together and they can, they can fall into it. And that's why we're considering them like, kind of part of the grunge movement but at the same time like today in 2023 i don't think you can be a grunge band no you could obviously you could tell Soundgarden's not the same oh well, up until you know they disbanded pearl jam doesn't sound the same allison even yeah. allison chains is kind of not the same you know they have elements that are similar but they were very different they always tried to stay more on the harder edge despite the fact that they came out with jar of flies and sap they always were on the harder edge of yeah. of the of their scene um bush for me did nothing okay <laughs> they they were huge i mean they they that first album was enormous for them um i liked that first single that they had everything zen you know what you could throw glycerin down the freaking toilet. I can't stand that song. I I'm not a fan of Bush whatsoever. I mean, I I can understand why they're classified early on with the grunge albums, but like something about 
their style just does nothing well, for me. Let's see, why are they why are they grunge? Well, Steve Albini produced their second album, you know, so mm-hmm. it, it was that kind of thing. The first album came out in ninety four, so it was it was on the tail end of the grand the grunge scene or you know, or the grunge that uh, that kind era. of second wave, I guess. Yeah. The, but they were English. They're not fucking grunge, you know, but they had the sound. Okay. So they sound grungy. And and the and the guitars as distorted as they sound, you know, that's why they're lumped into that category. And it was basically England's way of capitalizing on that, on that whole scene, you know, but what else were you going to be back then? You had to be grunge or you were completely something different, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I can definitely wasn't into Bush. I mean, like I said, I like that one. I had the album, you know, because that was popular at the time. Everything Zen was cool. Glycerine, not so cool. I, didn't, I just don't like that song. All right. So I guess that kind of wraps things up for our, our second episode. Uh, any thoughts about the grunge scene before we move on? The grunge scene, it, it, was, it was good while it lasted. Um, there was some really good things that came out of it. There was some, some things that um, obviously hurt the music industry in general it hurt certain styles of music but again as we've constantly talked about as much as as a lot of people or a lot of musicians and artists from the the 80s metal scene want to say that it was grunge's fault for their lack of success i always sit there and say well if you wrote a better song you would you wouldn't have had that problem but there's to some degree there's there's truth to the fact that grunge killed you know glam metal but at the same time when you shoot yourself in the foot you're not helping um and that's you know I, like i said there's some good things that came out of out of grunge i mean there was some really good music really good artists um but at the same time the 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 sad thing about the grunge scene and the grunge era was to see how many good artists for lack of a better term, self-imploded, self-destructed, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of them, a very small percentage did not make it out alive. And that's unfortunate. I think there's a few things that I take away from it. And, and it's that, um, this was, a scene that was allowed to grow organically and it really put the kind of overblown music industry on notice you know um things had reached a point where with with the hair metal scene for lack of a better term um became very much manufactured you know, bands that started it at the beginning were were unique and, and interesting, but then they were just signing everybody they possibly could with a single that could put out an album based around that one single. And when grunge came about, it was a shock to the system that something that was out of their control, out of the major uh, record company's control, was blowing up and was huge. Now they got their fingers in it and of course corrupted it just like everything else. Um, but that little section of, of the world in Seattle was allowed to kind of organically build up. And that's really cool. And those guys were artists, you know, they weren't, 
the businessmen. They weren't the um, uh, manufactured groups that were put together by a record company. Nobody said you have to have this guy in the band because he's got long hair. You know, they, they, they were just themselves. And that's kind of the same thing that happened with the Bay Area thrash scene um, and and some others that just pop up out of nowhere. And then, of course, the record companies get involved and they're uncreative, un, un, you know, human or inhuman um, grasp takes hold. But um, there's always these moments in time where actual true artists get to shine. And like you said, it's very sad that a lot of them didn't you know, make it through. Um, I think now that it's kind of a cautionary tale where we can see that there are resources available for people, but at the same time, like we, we have this like record of history and even though it's brief, it's, you know, basically the, the early nineties, um, that says like, there was this moment where people stood up against the norm and said, like, we want something different. We don't want this, self or this manufactured crap that's coming out and that's the truth so i think the the grunge scene is is going to be one that's always remembered in in music history even though the, it's a brief but impactful time i agree it, it'll definitely be rem- remembered in, in music history and it, it, it definitely put a stamp and it, it deservedly so but at the same time it it had an effect worldwide on the entire music industry, good or good and bad. Good and bad, yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to our big four uh, for tonight, and it's going to be our big four grunge albums. Um, so, I believe I went first last week. So I think it's your turn to go. That is correct. Uh, you did go first, so I will I will go first this time. <laughs> um, my number four is going to be Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. Um, I never thought in a million years I would have Soundgarden on one of my big fours, but uh, here they are. And, you know, being in the context of grunge, uh, I think it's a fantastic album. I like it a bit more than um, Super Unknown. Uh, but that's kind of like a, I tend to go more towards the raw aspect of, of music. And I think it's I think it's a little more um, more close to metal, I guess, on that album than it is for Super Unknown. I like more of the songs on there. I'd like the singles better. So um, I really kind of thought about it. And, you know, there was a couple like... Um, Nevermind, which I do like as an album, but I think it just didn't do it for me as much. So, um, my number three is Core from Stone Temple Pilots. Um, that was one that I've I've liked for quite a bit longer. The singles on the album are really good, but the whole album as a whole um, is is quite good. To me, that's the best Stone Temple Pilots album. I like the, some of the stuff that followed, but. Uh, it wasn't until Velvet Revolver that I really got into like Scott Weiland again. Um, always liked his voice. Always th- thought he was a really talented guy. Uh, a- another tortured artist, but um, I think that's just the general theme for the grunge scene. Um, and then my number two is Jar of Flies from 
Alice in Chains, not technically an album, but an EP, but it is seven songs long, and it's as long as any Slayer album. Uh, so, <laughs> Jar <of> Flies, <laughs> you know, acoustic release, but just, like, really outpouring of emotion put on that record. My favorite song, Alice in Chains song is on there, which is Nutshell. Um, I... I'm a huge fan of that song and Lane Staley in general. His voice is just amazing and very unique. And you could tell even through his health issues um, that kind of made his voice even more impactful sometimes. It's like listening to Johnny Cash as he got old. Um, and then my number one is Dirt from Alice in Chains. Uh, to me, it's a near flawless album. You know, from beginning to end, you can listen to every track. Um, you know, it stands out as their highest selling record. Um, I, I, you know what, that's questionable because isn't Jar of Flies a higher selling album than, than Dirt technically? Um, let me check. Well, regardless, um, Dirt is a fantastic album, great singles, great album or great songs that didn't make it as singles. Um, you know, has pretty much every major track other than maybe uh a man in the box that that i think most people would know on it so no dirt was actually had sold more dirt, dirt sold more than okay yeah, dirt sold five million and um jar flies sold four okay gotcha. according to wikipedia oh, okay which isn't always the most valuable resource but um I'll go with it. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that's my big four. Awesome. I, I'm surprised you have two from Alice in Chains. Um, but that's, uh, but they're both great. You know, what am I, what are you going to do? Right. Um, jar of flies for me. I, I love that record because one thing that I really, really enjoy about it is the production. When, when they go into, um, uh, what's that song that they, that they have on there? Um, when they go into uh, No Excuses, just the, the, the sound of the drums is so crystal clear. You know, it's so it's just something so soothing about that to me. Anyhow, <laughs> I really like that album. Um, mine, we have a 50% crossover. Put it that okay. way. Uh, so two out of four, you have the same as me. Um, so, and I literally just made a last second change um, because uh, after making some comments during the show, I realized that, you know what, I like this one a little bit better. Anyway, so my number four is going to be Nirvana's Nevermind. Um, it is what broke the doors down when it came to the grunge scene. It is what created the 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 buzz across America. Yes, Alice in Chains had come out the year before, but they didn't have the same kind of buzz and impact that Nirvana's Nevermind had. And it, and Smells Like Team Spirit uh, still is a, a staple on, on many, many music stations across the country today. Um, number three is Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger. Uh, much like you, it's, it's one of these albums that stands out. It's definitely different than, than Super Unknown. This was the last of the grunge albums for Soundgarden. And... Coming off of Louder Than Love and into Bad Motorfinger, you can see that kind of progression. I don't think that the same progression from Bad Motorfinger to Super Unknown was expected. And so um, 
Bad Motor Finger had all the elements of grunge and and there was just there's a lot of unique things like Jesus Christ Pose is such a unique song, um, but then you have that sludgy slaves and bulldozers, you know it's it's so cool and outshined is like a combination of both of them you know I mean they have really good songs in them and Rusty Cage the lead song the lead single lead song off the album is is got this most unique uh, intro with the with the guitars. Uh, on it because there's only one guitar player it's not like you know um anybody else was really playing guitar i mean yes chris cornell played guitar but he wasn't playing guitar then for soundgarden the way he would eventually become you know a a secondary-ish kind of guitar player um it was pretty much all kim at that point and that was pretty badass if you ask me number two for me is mad seasons above um, like I said, it, being a super group, it, it to me became the epitome of everything that was grunge at that time. I mean, coming out in 95, like it did, it, it summed up and kind of basically put a, a, um, uh, exclamation point on the scene. And in reality, you and I kind of talked about it before we started recording today, uh, the death of, of. Kurt Cobain kind of put an end to the grunge era for the most part. I mean, obviously it still existed afterward and they still had some grunge albums to come out, but it really was the, 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 the beginning of the end for the grunge era at that point when, when Kurt passed away and this album kind of just puts the, the stamp on it. It's like, yep, this is it right here. You you can almost, it's, it's almost like a line of delineation at that point from, from that point forward you know, it was downhill all the way. And number one for me is your number one, Allison Chains' Dirt. Um, I mean, again, like Mad Season, if you needed a grunge album, you can sit there and look at either one of those two albums and say, yep, that's pretty much the epitome of grunge. I mean, Dirt is exactly that. It's dirty, it's sludgy, but it's not heavy sludge like Soundgarden's, you know, slaves and bulldozers but just that sound that jerry was able to create on that album is just so grungy sleazy but very metal at the same time and that and they they were true to their word they were a metal band but yet they were in that grunge scene so i really really enjoy that album i I really feel like it was a step up from uh, facelift, face facelift, oh, yeah, yeah but definitely. I I love facelift. Don't get me wrong, but dirt was just like it was it was ten steps above as far as just everything fell into place. The songwriting was better. Um, you know, Lane stepped up and and was involved in in some of the the writing in general, not just lyrics. Um, and the, and his songs were good. Angry Chair is an awesome song, um, and the instrumentation got better. Like their actual playing, as well as as the recording. I mean, it was just it was a better al- album overall. You'd love to see that. Sophomore, I mean, the sophomore slump is a real thing, but that was not a sophomore slump at all. No, not maybe, at all. Maybe that's why they released Sap because yeah. even though a Sap was good. It was it was not as good as facelift, you know, being just an EP. But their EPs are so long that they're they're basically albums. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, we're glad that you were able to stick with us through this really long uh, episode. And um, one one final thing I want to tell everyone, if you or someone you know are in distress and need to speak to someone, please call 1-800-273-TALK. Or even better, nowadays, you can actually dial 988 on your cell phone and you'll be connected to someone that will listen to you. And so please reach out if you desire that help. Um, it, it's, it's important to everyone that you do so. Well, that's our big four grunge albums. And that brings a close to this episode of Debating Metal. If you like what you heard today, you can download all our previous episodes on your desired podcast platforms. And while there, click subscribe and you'll get a new episode from us every week or so. And don't forget to leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. YouTube viewers, click subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when we post a new episode. So remember to tune in next week as we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya! See ya!